Recorded live. Hello again, everybody. This is Pastor Visser from Atlanta, Georgia, once again bringing you another Wednesday night Bible study. And dear kinsfolk, like, with me, like always, is Obadiah 118 from the ChristianIdentityForum.net. Are you there, dear brother? I am, dear Jeremy, and get a listeners. Excellent. What a week, huh? So much to talk about. Yeah, yes, indeed. Uh, too much to talk about, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it's almost as if we uh, we should have just continued doing our show last week, maybe another four or five hours long, because uh, Christian identity is one of those types of things. It's always mo- well, it just t- tells you it's it's the truth when it's moving so much. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, there has been some rather interesting events and um, some funny, not some not so funny. Excellent. Yeah, and tonight tonight is our uh, spooky, well, we got a bit of, tomorrow's actually our spooky base. Tonight we're actually supposed to be having a special guest who um, has been confirmed, so hopefully he'll uh, call in very shortly, but nonetheless, how you been doing? How are things down under? Yeah, it's been pretty good actually. It's, uh, it's only 18 degrees, um, that's uh, Celsius today, um, so uh, here in Melbourne, the weather is so topsy-turvy. I mean, one, one day you can have a 100-plus degree Fahrenheit day and the next day have a, just a 60-degree a day. Wow, yeah. I remember you were saying last week that it was uh, gearing up to be Melbourne's hottest day. Yes, it fell short of that by a, about 0.5 or something like that, but it got pretty darn close. Excellent. Over here, it's been pretty unseasonably warm, too. It's been up in the, well, at least in the high 70s during the day. So it's kind of odd the first week of December it being so, you know, it's supposed to be a winter month, and it's actually kind of hot over here. Oh, Jeremy, before I uh, forget, I must apologize. I did promise to, well, I don't think I promised. I certainly hope I did because I broke it to um, post the, the first chapter of my book. Um, last week, but I, 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 I sort of looked at it, and being the fuss pot I, uh, I am, I told you folks I was slow, um, I decided to do a major rewrite, but that'll be um, available um, tomorrow morning, I promise, kind of. Yeah, well, you know, good art can't be rushed, that's the thing, it's kind of like Microsoft's mentality and a typo negative's mentality about it, it's always been, it's done when it's done, you know, you don't want to push it, you don't want to do it too uh too forcibly, but I know I've been looking forward to reading it. Well, you know, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be in such a hurry to get it out there because people might think it's the biggest load of trash they they ever read, they've ever they've ever read. But I, I, doubtless some, some of my detractors will think that. But uh, you know, you you got to take the good with the bad. Absolutely. You know, some of our detractors out there are the same types of folk who love calling good evil and and, and, and evil good or vice versa. So their opinion doesn't really matter. But for the flock, you know, that's the thing. As long as the flock is satisfied, it's good. True art can't be waited. we got to work when we're inspired. Indeed. I heard something very funny the other day. Did you know, and this is apparently a true story, that our pastor Martin Lindstedt sleeps on a waterbed? Did you know that? Huh. Though that seems kind of interesting to me. I don't know how he'd get away with that, having a pick in his back pocket, but hey. I mean, what, what do you reckon the breaking strain of a waterbed like that would have to be, you know, with him and Roxy on it? I mean, it'd have to be made out of Kevlar or something. 
<laughs> absolutely put up on like wellhouse cinder blocks, you know, to hold the girth above. Well, they'd have to put it on a piece of post-tension concrete, wouldn't they? I mean, that'd be the only thing that could support it. You know, you, you imagine some of the G-forces that must must be uh, being pushed in the in the Linstead bedroom. I reckon that it probably defies all known laws of physics. You know, they. I reckon they should send myth, Mythbusters in to just see if it's all real or not. You know, this one's busted, folks. They sleep on the floor. <laughs> I would undoubtedly tune in for that episode right there. You know, it would have to be something along the lines of, of uh, a spaghetti at Rabbit Track Road, you know, and a cooking spaghetti with uh, the Pope, quote-unquote. <laughs> they actually did one of my suggestions. I... um. I suggested that they see whether... Um, well, there's a scene in a James Bond movie from A View to a Kill where James Bond is being, he's in this car that drives, he drives it into a lake. He's being shot at by these villains and um, the villains are still there when he, when he gets out of the car. He, he can see them from below the surface of the water. So to prevent himself from drowning, what he does, he breathes in air from the, the car tyres. And, and, and I... I, I I suggested that to them. I said, you know, is this possible? Can you actually, could you actually do that? And they put it to the test and you couldn't. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, that's been a mystery, I tell you. I tell you, you know, the thing that never ceases to amaze me is how no matter what seems to happen out there, whether it's white nationalism or Christian identity, either or, if a white nationalist group or a, or a, or a pro-Aryan group, put it that way, gets together and they're going to have a little bit of fellowship, going to have a little sh a show, yeah, whether it's News Guy, whether it's Dan Johns, Eli James, or, or, or Bill Fink, you know, old Marty's there. He's there trolling 24 hours a day, seemed dutifully for the enemy, seemingly. So that's uh, always been quite eye-opening to me, how somebody who goes around telling people they don't have jobs... Yet he's there at every single show that we do. It's great. Well, Marty has the you know Guinness Book of World Records um, record for hypocrisy. I mean, you know, when was the last time he worked? What, ten years ago? Guy's absolutely pathetic. I mean, everything he accuses people of, he he is himself. Uh, you know, uh, to the power of ten. <laughs> absolutely, that's the beauty of it. And I like that you uh, brought forth what you brought forth last week about what happens to the slander and those who. Uh, who defame and, and talk wrong fully, you know, against God's chosen people. So well, when, uh, you, when you slander, you, you disengage yourself from Yahweh's grace. I mean, you, you know, it, it, you, to stay in Yahweh's grace, you have to walk in his ways and do the very best you can. But if you're constantly slandering people, if you're in the habit of doing that, then, you know, you're, you're so far removed from, from Yahweh, you might as well call yourself Satan. Oh, it's so uh, interesting how if you, uh, a lot of our detractors out there, you know, they really think it's kind of clever to come along and do these little ad-lib type uh, invented words. It's actually defilation of the uh, white Anglo-Saxon language, but, you know, you listen to it, I do. I don't have five hours, six hours. I'm amazed when we actually go that long, but I sure don't have five hours twice weekly to listen to the same thing over and over but you know when you listen to a lot of that stuff it comes off almost as being an entirely different language you pop it in and you hear them talk about obagender pooter pretty 
you know, the average guy out there doesn't even know what what the hell these words mean, and that's kind of the beauty of it all, too. It comes to show how the devices of the wicked really do come to naught, because the sane really can't understand the insane, and that's a beautiful thing. Well, I was talking to a neurologist uh, one day, um, and, you know, we were talking about all the, the various maladies, that, you know, various neurological um, complaints that people can have, and he said that a lot of people who suffer strokes and things, they often do odd things with the language. Um, you know, it's a sign of, you know, brain damage. And so, <laughs> you only have to look at Marty's indecipherable posts to see that there, there's obviously something, you know, some sort of um, psychological phenomenon going on there. It's, it's not merely him just, you know, poking fun at people. I mean, he does have this, you know, enormous tendency to, to rely upon these just idiotic made-up words and, and this uh, obscenity that he's just, he just loves and admires so much. I mean, everything Marty writes is just filled with homosexual references and scat references, and um, uh, it's just totally demented and deranged. And I'm, I'm just surprised that anything, that anyone, rather, in uh, Christian identity and white nationalism would have anything to do with him. That's why I was so surprised that Hunter Wallace went on his show. And, and boy, has Hunter Wallace been copying that on the VNN, copying a lot of a lot of um, abuse because of that on the VNN forum. Oh, well, you got to love the uh, the old modus operandi of old Marty because he has the same uh, behavioral pattern. If you watch him long enough, what he'll do is he'll try to join sides when he's brown-nosing, and then he'll turn against whoever it is that he is brown-nosing. And so the last week or so has seen a change in the old Brad Griffin, as Marty likes walking around saying, oh, Hunter, who he used to call Cunner Wallace, is a supporter of me. It's quite interesting to see how old Brad uh, went ahead and removed a bunch of Marty's comments from the WordPress over there because they were basically too far out of the norm to kind of save face for his uh, VNN crew over there. So I thought that was quite interesting. Well, Ron, Do Ron Doggett was asking somebody who made a post who said um, that he liked Marty, and I suspect that the person who said he was he liked Marty was probably Marty. I mean, you know, 99.99% of the times, if somebody's praising Marty online, it's Marty, under another name, of course. And, and he said, look, um, can I confirm that um, you support Martin Lindstedt? And the guy said yes, and, uh, and Doggett said, well, that's all I need to know. So, so another, I mean, he's got such a, he, he is so loathed by people over there, it's amazing. And what uh, Glenn Miller calls him Chester, and I, I was wondering, why does he call him Chester? But apparently there was a character in a, a, a Hustler, that, that porno magazine. Um, Hustler, Chester the Molester, uh, Chester, that's right. Yeah, Chester the Molester. And I apparently the guy who actually did that was actually, actually was a molester. Yeah. Yeah, and Glenn Miller has good right to go ahead and rebuke him. As, as many of us have in Christian identity, you know, come out and said the same exact thing. It's quite interesting how even many in white nationalism say the same thing. Glenn Miller dislikes him because he actually met up with him once once, and said when he walked up in his little trailer-slash-camper that he lives in on Rabbit Track Road, the smell of urine was so overpowering, I kid you not, that uh, he said he's sick to this day. He's never forgotten it. It was that life-changing. Yes, and we'll never forget the times that um, Marty um, was supposed to take Glenn Miller on in a fair fight and turned around and ran hid behind Roxy's skirt at Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, what a coward. <laughs> 
Yeah, I would have loved to have heard that, but that's you know that's seemingly what goes how it how 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 these things happen. By the way, Pastor Eli has joined the chat, so I expect he should be calling in shortly. But you know, the, oh, beauty. It's exactly how uh, Jesus Christ taught time and time again. How the tares look like wheat. You know, how goats oftentimes look like sheep. And I think that's what many of us miss within Christian identity is the aspect that, you know, we look at Joel Osteen, we look at John Hagee, and we say, oh, that's the enemy. And many times we forget that the enemy attempts to always appear to look like the genuine. And uh, so with that being being said, uh, Pastor Eli James has joined us. Pastor Eli James, how are you doing this evening? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, I, was, I just got off the, uh, the Skype. Uh, my Skype and my email have been having problems today. I don't know why, but uh, it's been kind of like this ever since the ADL has been messing with my email and my website. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. How the ADL went after you a couple uh, a yeah, couple months ago, and 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 we, in fact, me and Obadiah were just discussing how many of the people out there—not even people—we could call them creatures or tears—were rejoicing at that, even though they claimed to be Christian identity. Right. It was quite telling to see that. Right. Well, yeah. There's uh, there's a lot of people within identity who uh, talk to talk but don't walk the walk. And that's the bottom line, you know. You're, uh, there's the golden rule that we're supposed to follow, and uh, well, well, obviously Lindstedt, you know, was probably one one of the <laughs> first to uh, go brouhaha, right? And then uh, who else? Yeah, uh, well, uh, uh, maybe Skip. Uh, hello, Eli. By the way, this is Obadiah. Sorry to interrupt. Hi, Obadiah. Yeah, nice to hear from you. Okay. Yeah, so uh, it's been a real struggle getting the website back. I still have in, anywhere between 20 and 30 articles still to load up. Fortunately, we got all the slideshows up, and so the Migration Chronicles slideshow is uh, available for viewing, which is tremendous. You know, um, uh, Chris Peed is the guy who actually did the slides. I, I wrote the little script, and he, he did the slides. And then... Um, our webmasters have uh, put some really beautiful banners up there with a, you know, kind of like a primitive Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, imagery and, and uh, Bible verses, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and we got a whole new section called Jesus is not a Jew. I've been searching uh, the web and I've got uh, articles by various authors who wrote uh, articles by that title. And one of the best is by W.G. Finlay, Jesus Was Not a Jew. So there's there's really dozens, well, maybe two dozen authors all together. And, and I even included Benjamin Friedman because his, uh, his book, Facts Are Facts, uh, opens up with a long discourse on how Jesus was not a Jew, <laughs> right? So, and then it goes into the Talmud, quoting... Uh, really obnoxious verses from the Talmud showing that uh, Judaism is really uh, a religion of hate. So uh, that's really an outstanding book, uh, Facts Are Facts, by Benjamin Friedman, who was an insider, by the way. He was secretary to Bernard Baruch during the Roosevelt years. And so that guy, you know, he was really up there on the inside watching what Roosevelt and all his uh, Jew cronies were doing to America. And Friedman actually got sick of it and converted to Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. So how are you? Eli, did you? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. 
I was just going to ask, um, would you like to um, plug your website and your podcast before we get into uh, our main okay, topic? Okay, sure. Well, yeah, the website is uh, www.anglo-saxonisrael.com, and that's you know full-blown Christian identity from beginning to end. And then I have killthebank.net, which is all about Jewish usury, fractional reserve banking, and how the uh, Jews have been manipulating nations you know, by manipulating money for the last 2,500 years. Uh, it's, it's amazing how few people actually know anything about money. You know, it's a really mysterious subject. But come to think of it, you know, most Christians don't know anything about Christianity. <laughs> so uh, it's about <laughs> the same type of thing, right? You know, uh, the, the Jews manipulate money as if, uh, you know, as if it were a monopoly game, and actually it is. And then the Judeos manipulate Scripture as if, uh, you know, they could... They can translate Hebrew and Greek words however they please, and nobody seems to know that, you know, if you translate the word red as green and, uh, you know, vice versa, you know, it's just not going to make sense. And so that, that's what the Judeo-Christian clergy have done following the lead of the Jew. And, of course, the most egregious example is the word Gentile, which actually means a person of the same race, tribe, or family in the original language, uh, Latin, that it comes from. And, of course, the Jews uh, uh, redefine it to mean a non-Israelite or a non-Jew, right? And the, and the Judeo-Christians follow whatever the Jews do, the Judeo-Christians follow it without question. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. And it leads me to the aspect and of of discussing those who call evil good and good evil, where the Bible says woe unto them. Right. Because, I mean, the average Judeo-Christian has never even opened the Bible to First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, the Jews killed the prophets and even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity. Right. So how the quote-unquote Jew or the Christ killer became known as God's chosen people is beyond me in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, that's because uh, word manipulation in the Old Testament, first of all, the, the word Jew is a recent invention. I don't think it, it appeared in print until around 1650 or so. So it's a kind of a nickname for two entities in the Hebrew. One is the uh, uh, tribe of Judah, which the Hebrew is Yehudi, and then in the New Testament it's Yodeos. And in the in the two languages they have different meanings. In the in the Hebrew, it simply means Judah himself, Yehud. Or the tribe of Judah, all of this, all his descendants, Yehudi. And as we know, the Yehudi were non-race mixing separatist whites of the tribe uh, of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so there was no indication ever in the Old Testament that uh, the Judahites ever race mixed, and if they did, they were punished for it. Okay, but now in the Greek, Judeos has a completely different meaning. It's not a reference to the tribe of Judah. It's a reference to a citizen of the nation of Judea, and we know that there were two major ethnic groups there. Uh, the Judahites, who were the remnant and the holdovers from, oh, you know, well, the Old Testament, okay? And they kept uh, their, their lineage separate and distinct from that of the Idumeans, who were the other major ethnic, ethnicity. And the, those were Sephardic Canaanites and Edomites, completely different people from the Judahites 
and uh, they were always historical enemies throughout the Old Testament, okay, and into the New Testament as well. So the word Jew really derives from Judeos, and then you, you have to realize that there's two different types of Jews, just like in America, you know, you have Northerners and Southerners, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but the original Northerners and Southerners were all of the same race. They were white Anglo-Saxon, right? So if you, let's say if you combine America into, and Mexico into one nation and call it Amorexico, then you would have the American whites and the uh, Latino or Amerindian Mexicans, okay? They're definitely not of the same race, but you can refer to the entire nation as Amorexican, right? That's how the, the Jew, word Jew is to be understood. It's a, it's a nickname for a multicultural state into which uh, Jesus Christ was born, and he he had no use for those Sephardic Edomites, <laughs> right? And so whenever you see a, a, a reference to evil Jews in the New Testament, uh, typically it's the scribes and Pharisees, Edomites, Canaanites, etc., okay? But uh, rarely is actually, well, there's a couple instances. You know, well, let's say uh, John 7, 1, where it says, Jesus would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Well, obviously we're talking about the Edomite Jews here, okay? Since the Judahites... Now, now, Eli, yeah. if I could just ask a question. You, you said that the word Jew didn't appear on the scene until 1650. Yeah. So it wasn't in the original King James translation at all? No, never. No, not until, uh, not until the English language adopted the word Jew, okay, and, use it, uh, and used it in the Old Testament to replace, it with, uh, replace the word Judah. So wherever you see Jew in the Old Testament, it should read... Judah in terms of the person, the man Judah, or Judahite in terms of his descendants. Okay, the word Jew uh, is a false translation, and it was inserted in there uh, by the King James translators uh, and, and at the behest of the Jewish Masoretes, who are the ones who provided the Hebrew text for the King James Old Testament. And so they didn't always translate it as Jew. Most of the time they translated correctly as Judah and, and Judahite, okay, or as people of Judah or men of Judah or nation of Judah, okay. So uh, the, the word Jew has no business being in the Old Testament at all. It, wherever you see Jew as a reference to the descendants of Judah, it should have stated Judahite, okay, because that's a direct reference to uh, Judah's descendants, as opposed to, you know, everybody knows Jews as people who practice this religion called Judaism and their false claim to being the Israel of the Bible, <laughs> right? So you have to understand that the Judahites never referred to themselves by this word Jew, okay? So that's a fraudulent translation. So when did, when did the word Jew become, a, become an all-purpose word? a permanent all-purpose word in the Bible. When, when did they start using it as a, a word that meant all, could mean Judahite, Edomite, and Judean? Yeah, well, the, the term Edomite is rarely ever discussed by Judeo-Christians or by Jews. They rarely even bring that word up because they, they don't, <laughs> the Jews don't want anybody to know, find out about the Edomites and how they usurped the kingdom of Judah under Herod and Antipater, you know, they, they just don't want anybody to know about that because they want people to believe that the fighting 
and the infighting that occurred in Judea in the days of Herod was between good uh, people of the tribe of Judah and bad people of the tribe of Judah. But that's not the case. It was uh, it was uh, fighting between the Edomites of Idumea and the Judahites of Judah, and it was a race war between these two groups, and the Edomites won because Herod usurped the kingdom, assassinated the true Judahite king with the help of the Roman army, okay? And so uh, th this is why it's very important for the Apocrypha, which talk a lot about this, to really be in the Bible. You would find the Apocrypha in the Jerusalem Bible. I have a King James Version, a Cambridge edition that includes the Apocrypha, and the Apocrypha were in the original 1611 King James Bible, okay? So you have to think about these words. Uh, what is the correct translation of these words? Do these words really belong in there? And it's because the, the word Jew is, is used to designate both the, the pure-blooded house or tribe of Judah and at the same time is used to designate the multiracial Edomites of Judea. Yeah, it's, you have a word that actually designates two enemy populations. It's absurd. Okay, you, you get what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah. The, the word Jew is used to designate the two enemies. All right, so it's like in Chicago, we have the White Sox and the Chicago Cubs. It's like referring to uh, having a word uh, like a Chicago baseball team. But there's two <laughs> Chicago baseball teams, right? So you've got to designate which team, which, which team are you talking about, the Cubs or the White Sox? And it's the same with the word Jew. Are you talking about these Edomites who snuck in and took over the kingdom uh, during the days of Herod? Or are you talking about the pure-blooded Judahites of the Old Testament? Who are you talking about here? Okay. So this is the type of confusion that the rabbis create by using this word Jew in uh, a non-specific and confusing ways. And they do this deliberately because they don't want Christians to understand that there's a difference between Judahites and Edomites. Okay. Yeah, and that, I think that's a really valid point, too, because many of the detractors or even the white nationalists who are anti-Christian identity, I believe a lot of them make the mistake, you know, of racializing it. They'll say, well, you know, Yahweh's a Hebrew, Yahweh's a Jewish God, and they always use the terminology Judean or Jew to use that. But I think we in Christian identity know that, it, like Mary... Mary spawned Jesus Christ, so Christ through the flesh, at least on that right. side, wouldn't have been through his stepfather, Joseph the Judean, in the first place. That's right. Well, Joseph was a Judahite, just as Mary was, but they, they were Judeans in the sense of being citizens of the country of Judea, okay, but racially they were Judahites, okay, and the scribes and Pharisees were installed by Herod the Edomite, uh, the first thing he did was, he, when he took power, he assassinated the entire Sanhedrin and cleared all of the Judahites out of the Sanhedrin and then replaced them with his Edomite cronies. So you see it, just like in America. Once the Jews started moving into America, they started infiltrating our institutions, kicking the, the true Americans out, and then all of a sudden Jews took the place of, uh, you know, you know, the, the mayors, the, the congressmen, the senators, especially in appointment-type bureaucratic offices. You know, the Jews filled those, especially under the Jew deal by FDR. 
uh, he created all these offices and promptly filled all these offices with Jews, many of them who weren't even American citizens. They, got, they just got off the boat from, uh, from communist Russia and became bureaucrats in, in the Jew deal, right? And this is how the Jews infiltrate any country that they target. And so in those days, they targeted Judah, and today they're targeting America. It's yeah. like a real-life version of um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where you have yeah. these aliens, these extraterrestrials arriving on Earth and taking, yeah. taking over the appearance of people and yeah. uh, having this malevolent, um, yeah. you know, this malevolent plan to destroy the world and the people in it. Amen. Yeah, and, and it, is, it is kind of like science fiction, but it's actual, it's actual fact and it's actual scripture. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of Obama actually when you uh-huh. when you mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt doing the same exact thing because Obama granting all this amnesty to all the illegals in America now yeah. that was a huge blow I think for the average American white worker. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, the whole uh, what do you call it? The depression was caused by the Jew Federal Reserve Bank. They deliberately caused the crash in 1929. And they never say whenever you have an economic collapse like that, what you should be doing is pumping money into the economy to get it going again. Well, they reduced the money supply to guarantee that the depression would continue. And then they then they stole our gold. Right. In 1933, they stole our gold. So everything the Jews do is, you know, for a predetermined plan and, uh, you know, they allowed the depression to get worse and worse and worse. And then they, you know, after fomenting World War One, then they fomented World War Two to deliberately kill millions of white people. You know, and that's what that's all that World War One and Two were about. And uh, any honest historian will will tell you that the communists won World War Two, even though they were a pipsqueak nation in terms of military might. But that's because Roosevelt gave them Lend-Lease and gave them all kinds of weaponry and then handed all of Eastern Europe over to Stalin after World War II, right? Because the, the Jews were behind the Bolshevik Revolution and Communist Russia, and they're behind the destruction of Germany and, and all these European nations where mainly white people suffered. The Jews hardly suffered at all. Yeah, I think it's really, really sad how at least World War II, when they started getting Americans calling their brothers the Germans Krauts right. and and really loving the alien more than they did their own brother, that right. was probably the saddest aspect of World War II. Well, it's the typical uh, activity of a parasite because the parasite, what the parasite does, it attacks the nerve center of the host, okay, to, to confuse the host so the host doesn't realize who the friends are and who the enemies are, and that and that's what the Jews do. That's why they always take control of the media. Whatever country they target, the first thing they do is take control of the media, so that the people, their propaganda will utterly confuse the population. But uh, 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 we were talking earlier about Hebrews, okay, uh, and white nationalists. The fact is, the white nationalists uh, have believed the Jewish lie that they are Hebrews, that they are Shemites, that they are Israelites, and that they are Judah, etc. The fact is, the Jews are Edomites and Canaanites and have no racial connection whatsoever to the Hebrews, who are actually an Aryan people. And um, 
on my website, I've got several articles about Hebrew language, and the fact is that Hebrew is an Indo-Aryan language. And just because the Jews claim Hebrew for themselves doesn't mean that, that it is, right? And, uh, and when you actually look at the you know, skeletons of the Hebrew people and of the Israelite people, you find they have Aryan features, okay? They don't have the hooked nose, receding forehead of the Edomite Jews, okay? So just because the Jews claim to be the Israelites and the Shemites and the Hebrews of the Old Bible doesn't make it true. And this is what white nationalists need to understand, that uh, Moses was not a Jew, Abraham was not a Jew, Judah was not a Jew, Jacob was not a Jew. None of the Old Testament patriarchs were Jews, not a single one of them. They were all Israelites. The Jews descend from these Edomites, and of course today from the Khazars, you know, who converted to Judaism in 740 AD. But in Old Testament times, there were the pure-blooded Aryan Israelites, and there were the Canaanite hybrids who became known to the world as Idumea in the Old Testament, right? And that's how the Greeks and Romans, that's how, you know, that was the Greek name for the Edomites, Idumea. So they I think confused the world tremendously with these false designations. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to point out is how, you know, with Christ, it was never really judge a person according to what they say. It was always judge a tree or a family tree according to their fruits. And I think it's valid what you're bringing up because these these traits of the snake, all the way from, you know, from the temple itself, we see the Jew always flocking to bank positions, and we see the Jew even today right. still trying to buy back our gold. Right. Well, they, they steal it from us through their paper money creation, okay? Because what they, what they, the first thing they do after they take control of the media is they, they force us to exchange our gold for their paper, okay? And that's what they did in 1933. And the reason they did that was because they lost so much money on World War I. They deliberately confiscated the, the gold of the American people so they could pay off their debts to the European bankers, right? <laughs> and American industrialists, most of them being Jews, but some of them being blue blood Anglos who uh, joined the war effort, you know, such as J.P. Morgan, right? So uh, what they do, they always conspire to get the rich, the richest whites on their side, and of course making big money at the expense of the American people. And so you, know, so you have a lot of race traders causing death and destruction when they join with the Jews in, in all of these wars of mayhem and destruction, right? And, uh, you know, so, and then you have these Christian Zionists who support everything the Jews do because they falsely believe that they're the Israel of the Bible. So this, this concept that the Jews are Israel is actually history's oldest and biggest lie. And, it's, and fortunately, I, I'd have to say, gentlemen, that our efforts in educating people are are having an effect, you know, because my Sunday show on uh, Republic Broadcasting Network, uh, Voice of Christian Israel, that is is attracting a lot of new people that I, I've never known. Uh, it, it, people are calling and saying, "Yeah, well, I've I've known CI for so so many years," and, and some people call in, "I've never heard anything like this, but it's very interesting, and it makes the Bible make sense, right?" So. And and when I uh, speak before white nationalist audiences, I always tell them, well, you guys, you know that the Jews are the biggest liars on the face of the earth. Why in the world would you believe it 
when they claim to be the Israel of the Bible. <laughs> right? It's a very good point. Uh-huh. It's just another one of their lies. Okay? And they tell that lie, and they tell the lie that Jesus was a Jew to ingratiate themselves to Christians and to antagonize white nationalists. Okay? <laughs> so they got it covered both ways, right? They, they duped the Christians into believing that Jesus was one of them, right? And then they duped the white nationalists into thinking that Jesus was a Jew. And uh, you know, But obviously, neither group reads the New Testament. So, Eli, we see all around the world today a sort of, you know, people are, uh, white people are slowly starting to wake up to just who, who, who the Jews really are. Yes. But we only see that really in dribs and drabs. We're not seeing a sort of a mass awakening yet. What do you think it will take to, um, to, to, to instigate a, a mass awakening? Well, uh, all we can do right now is just continue to preach the word, right? Uh, there's, uh, there's not going to be a mass awakening because the Bible says, uh, Yahweh says, I will retrieve my people one by one, okay? Which means, and, and it's almost impossible to convert somebody who's been brainwashed to the extent that the Judeo-Christians have and to the extent that the white nationalists have into believing that Jesus was a Jew, okay? But, you know, if you read the four Gospels, there's not a single page of the four Gospels where Jesus Christ does not uh, attack these scribes and Pharisees, okay, who are your real Jews. So, uh, again, the, the Judeo-Christian world and the Jews try to pass off the conflicts in the New Testament as being an in-house battle between good Judahites and bad Judahites, and that's how virtually every theologian perceives the issue. But the reality is what you have is Judahites of the house of Judah and Edomites of the house of Esau duking it out in the days of Yahshua. And so the good Jews are the Judahites, right? The bad Jews are the Edomites, and that's how it breaks down. That's why I don't like to use the word Jew for the Old Testament Judahites, because, number one, they never called themselves that, and uh, they simply referred to themselves as Judah. But the Jewish people themselves used that terminology for themselves, and when we trace back their heritage through the Khazars and the Sephardics, we find that they are, well, lo and behold, they are Edomites and Canaanites, not Judahites at all, Okay. And this is the type of information that the Jews are desperately trying to prevent the public from knowing, right? And uh, it, because, for one thing, uh, Christian Zionism is their ace in the hole, and, uh, and evangelicals, you know, follow suit because they teach the same garbage, that the Jews are the Israel of the Bible. So if we can clear up the race issue and show the white nationalists that the Jews are a totally different race from Yahshua Messiah, and they have nothing in common, and in fact they're enemies, uh, racial enemies, then uh, you know, we would take a tremendous step forward. I think we, we make progress faster with the white nationalists than we can with the Judeo-Christians, because at least the white nationalists know that the Jews are evil, <laughs> right? <laughs> the the yeah. Christian Zionists and the televan uh, yeah, televangelists and evangelicals, you know, they actually believe that the Jews are the Israel of the Bible and God's chosen, which is absolute nonsense. So it's the, the world's oldest and biggest lie. It's a 2000. Now, Eli, you said that. Um, sorry to interrupt. No, oh, there's a bit of a there's a one second delay at my end. So sometimes I'm talking when I think there's silence, and there isn't any silence. Right. So I apologise for that. No problem. But um, 
you, you said that um, the Pharisees were Jews. Now, I'm sure some people listening to this will, will think to themselves, now, hang on a sec, um, Paul was a Pharisee, so why wasn't Paul a Jew? Well, uh, well uh, the Pharisees were primarily a Edomite sect established by Herod, okay? But just as today we have Jews who created the sect called Judeo-Christianity, okay, which is uh, obviously, that's a contradiction in terms, right? But Paul was a Benjamite who studied under the Pharisees, okay? Uh, so did Josephus. Josephus, uh, in his autobiography, states, well, he studied under the Sadducees, he studied under the Pharisees, he studied uh, under the um, Essenes, because he wanted to know what these different groups teach, okay? But he never remained with any of those. Josephus. He, he, he went, branched off on his own and actually became um, a soldier in the Roman army. So, but Paul clearly identifies himself as a Benjamite. Yes, he was deceived by Pharisaism, and there were a lot of Judahites who fell in with the scribes and Pharisees, just as today we have Christians who have fallen in with the Antichrist Jews, with the synagogue of Satan, because they've been deceived. So it's, it's a repeat of history, just as the scribes and Pharisees who were of Edomite extraction and uh, took over the, uh, the religious life of Judea, in the same way our modern Jews have taken over the religious life of America and also Europe and most of our white Christian nations uh, through their propaganda efforts. Okay, So when Paul uh, saw the light on the road to Damascus, then he began to realize who these Jews really are, and then when he turned against them, then they started persecuting him, right? So, uh, yeah. it, so any Christian who wakes up to what the Jews really are, who and what the Jews really are, then they start persecuting that person, you know? And so, uh, but there's not too many Judeo-Christians that I'm aware of, uh, you know, prominent ones, who have openly turned against the Jews, uh, because they realized who and what they are. Typically, the Judeo-Christian ministry, because they're paid, <laughs> they're paid to preach this nonsense that the Jews are Israel and that Jesus was a Jew. You know, I mean, they're paid millions to do yeah, that stuff. Yeah, and that's what I was going to bring up as well, is how the enemy spends millions upon millions of dollars to... Uh, propagate the lies that the Jews are God's chosen or, or what have you, because all you have to really do is turn on public television and seemingly, it, you know, whatever it is, if it's about the Holocaust, quote-unquote, the reason the Jews were persecuted, according to them, is they're God's chosen, quote-unquote. Right, right. Well, of course, it's all nonsense, and, you know, if we go to the marks, the prophetic marks of Israel, we find that uh, Israel would be a nation and a company of nations, and uh, that uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter, uh, I think it's eleven sixteen, where it talks about there shall be a highway from Assyria, and, and uh, that the Israelites would uh, be captive just as they were in Egypt, and uh, would uh, find a, take this highway uh, from Assyria into a new land. Okay, well that's our ancestors, the Caucasian people. So you know, the Jews never went through any kind of experience like this. And nor do the Jews teach, or, or do the Judeo-Christians teach, about the division of the 12 tribes into two houses, the 10 northern tribes, 
migrating into Europe, okay, and some of the uh, members of the two southern tribes also joining them. And they never teach about this because that's the true dispersion. The true dispersion of Israel began in 745 B.C., where the dispersion of the Jews uh, began in 70 A.D., when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem and sent the Jews packing you know, to various parts of the Roman Empire. Yeah, and they don't teach this at all. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, I've mentioned it in past broadcasts as well, that to me it seems extremely sad how through the media conditioning or maybe the public schools, they've got the average white army man or serviceman duped into thinking that there literally is no higher honor than to die for the Jews. So yeah. they got white teenagers, you know, over there killing other Christians, if you will, in yes, Af- Afghanistan yes. for the sake of the Jew. Yeah, and the Christian Zionists are saying, rah, rah, rah. Says boom ba, kill them all, right? Uh, these are Christians. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really amazing. Uh, by the way, how long is your show? Uh, it usually varies, but we usually have a we we try to target for two hours. Oh, but okay. Sometimes it does go over, and it it's a pretty free format. And, and every now and again, we'll have callers call in, but for the most part, you know, it just kind of goes where it goes because. You know, there's so much usually to discuss and hear a little there a little. When we start talking about Jesus not being a Jew, it's going to open up 20 other things, you know, sure, to talk sure. about. Well, uh, I do, you know, well, let's plan for two hours because uh, I do want to get into this article, uh, Jesus Was Not a Jew, by W.G. Finlay, who uh, I consider to be one of the, the greatest of Christian identity scholars. He was uh, based in South Africa. And he published a monthly news magazine, which was all Christian identity. Uh, his heyday was in the late 70s to, you know, the middle 90s. And uh, he published these magazines, and he did uh, audio recordings, you know, pretty much like uh, Ted Weiland uh, used to do it, I guess still does, you know, monthly audio recordings. And I have uh, dozens of those in my possession, both the audio recordings and the newsletters. Uh, he was a Paul basher because he thought Paul was a Jew, uh, didn't realize the extent to which the Goth, the, the epistles of Paul, how the language has been distorted by the churches, okay? So, uh, like the word Gentile. He took the word Gentile at face value, meaning, as the Jews have defined it, uh, a non-Israelite, okay? But it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, the word Gentile, as I said earlier, it means a person of the same race, tribe, or family. So with respect to Israelites, it means this, it means an Israelite. It means another Israelite, okay? And this is how the Jews uh, redefine words in order to confuse people. And then, so they, they say, well, Paul was the apostle to the non-Israelites, okay? Well, no, he was the apostle to the uncircumcision, which is the dispersed 12 tribes. Okay, that, that's that's who he was talking to, and uh, you know, for for example, one example of that is the Romans. He told the Romans that they were a wild olive branch, okay, because they're descended from Zarajuda, who left the company of the twelve tribes in Egypt, sailed across the Mediterranean, founded uh, Rome, founded uh, Greece, or, or merged into Greece, and uh, Troy. And uh, some of them went to Spain, 
which was called Iberia in those days, meaning land of the Hebrews, right? So, uh, of course, the Judeo-Christians know nothing of this history. And that's because you can't uh, graft a, uh, a grape branch into an olive tree, <laughs> right? <laughs> so only a, a branch of the same race can be grafted back in. So when Paul says that, he, he's not saying that other races can come into Israel. What he's saying is that the, the wild olive branch, the people who did not uh, participate in the exodus and who did not participate in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, that's what he was talking about. There were Israelites who did not participate in that aspect of our history. And that's, that's all he meant by that. Okay, And, and the word adoption that that means placement all right it means it means placing an heir in his place it doesn't mean you can adopt somebody of another race and make him an israelite <laughs> so there's numerous words in the epistles of paul that have been horribly translated and deliberately so by uh, in my opinion by the king james translators Okay. So when the Bible says, Eli, that um, there's neither Jew nor Greek, it's really talking about Israelites there because That's the right. Greeks were descended from the yet. tribe of Dan. Right. He's talking, uh, there is neither Judahite, okay? He's talking about the Judahites of Judea. There is neither Judahite nor the Greeks were Israelites. You know, the, the whole Greco-Roman world, by the time of Yahshua Messiah, was populated by these um, Israelites of the dispersion. Okay, uh, Parthia, which was a huge empire that fought Rome to a standstill, the Romans could never defeat Parthia. They were Judahites, and they had uh, Judahite kings of the descent of uh, Pharez. Okay, the Scythians were. Uh, most of the, the early Scythians were actually Japhethites, but remember there's a prophecy in Genesis chapter 10, I believe, that says, Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem, meaning that we Shemites, especially through the Davidic dynasty of kings that took control of Europe, that those Israelites would become the ruling dynasties of all the white nations. Okay? And that's exactly what happened. So uh, the the Greeks, the Romans, were a, 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 a conflation of Japhethites and Israelites, but it was the Israelites who took the leadership role, okay, and uh, decided the direction of these nations and, and the boundaries of these nations. Can you hold on one second? I have a knock on the door, <laughs> okay? Yep, no, no problem. problem. Ivan calling. Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> Well, Are you there, Jeremy? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, it's a very informative show today. Yeah. Okay, I'm back. Oh, we're back. Yeah. Okay. okay. Please continue, Eli. Yeah, uh, I think somebody's trying to come in the house, and my dogs are preventing him from doing so. Uh, give me one Good minute, doggy. okay? I'll be right back with you. Excellent. All right, okay. Yeah, a lot of information. And you know this topic, Jesus is not a Jew, is one of those open-ended topics that, just as he stated, as Finlay and even Swift, I believe Compare, have all done articles titled Jesus is not a Jew. And it's amazing how almost every single one of those articles is done from a different perspective or a different scripture point. Yes, and you only have to look in the Gospels to see just how 
what, what a mad on the Jews had to kill Christ. I mean, if they were of him, you know, they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't want to do that. They'd want to worship him as Messiah. But of course, he wasn't the Messiah to them. He wasn't even of the same race as them. Yeah, that's a good point. I love how the Judeo-Christian always misses John 8, chapter 8, where, you know, most people know 844, but in that narrative, at least in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus Christ tells them they're from beneath, he's from above, that where he goes they cannot follow, that they have different fathers. I mean, Christ spends a lot of time telling, you know, those quote-unquote Jews roundabout, or at least the pharisaical sect, that they didn't know God and they weren't of Yahweh. And Christ also referred to their law as your law. In other words, it wasn't his law, it was their law. Yeah, that's a valid point as well, because, you know, it would be eye-opening to your average Judeo-Christian for them to actually read parts of the Talmud or quotes from the Talmud to see what the Jew really thinks of Christ, you know. Yeah, and Christ said that they were children of the devil. Now, if they're not, if that's a lie, well, then that makes Christ a liar and he sinned. Yeah, that's a really good point as well. And that's the whole thing. I think, you know, how those who call evil good and good evil, you know, Eli's starting to discuss some of the marks of Israel. And it's blown my mind how people think, oh, well, the Jews were putting gas ovens, quote-unquote, during World War II because they're God's chosen, but yet all the promises given to Abraham is that they would be a blessing to all nations, that they would be as numerous as the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky, all of which, you know, the Jew does not fulfill, at least the modern Jew. And once you've had your eyes open to these things, once you've put on the glasses like Roddy Piper did in They Live and you see the world as it, and the people as, it, as they really are, you can't go back to seeing them as the way they're not. But, you, but it really goes to show when you, when you have your eyes open to these things, how obvious they are and just how blinded we were before we did have our eyes opened. You know, it's like this supernatural blindness that Yahweh's put on people's eyes so that, so that even this thing even it's quite obvious the Jews aren't God's people from the Bible people still can't see it even people have you know gone to theological college and studied the Bible and read it from cover to cover hundreds of times they still can't see it yeah yeah as Christ walked you know it was amazing how he would say let him who has eyes to see see or ears to hear hear because he truly has that it really is almost as if he gives you the ability or the spiritual insight to understand what it is many of them have been reading all along because the Judeo-Christian can read the same scripture that we do, at least the King James Bible, and, all, and miss those analogies. Like when the Jews come to Herod and they say, wait, wait, don't put down that he's the king of the Jews. Put down that he said he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. It's amazing to me how many of them will miss that and still say, oh, Jesus is a Jew so flippantly when he's supposed to be an innocent man guilty of nothing. Oh, exactly. I, I mean, you know... Um the very fact that they killed Jesus Christ, and the Bible says the Jews killed Christ. I mean, I mean, gee, what better sign do you need that you know the, the Jews are, are the enemies of Christians, the enemies of Christ, than that? I mean, they killed our our Lord and King, our God. I mean, you know, what more proof do you need? Okay, sorry about that. I'm back. No problem. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Right. Okay. So anyway, uh, this uh, on my website, Anglo-Saxon Israel. Uh, I've got a new section called Jesus is Not a Jew. I think I mentioned it earlier where I have, I think, about six articles by different authors who all wrote articles and essays 
by this title, or, or Jesus Christ was not a Jew, or Christ was not a Jew, uh, all of them by identity authors, okay? And uh, I think one of the more interesting ones is the uh, essay by W.G. Finlay, who, and it, the title is Jesus Was Not a Jew, and he talks about the fact that uh, Yahshua was a Nazarene. He, was, he, he came from Nazareth and uh, fulfilled various prophecies by coming through Nazareth. So uh, let me just quote here. He asks the question, who was Jesus of Nazareth? Unless one is prepared to discount the gospel accounts, one must provide the unequivocal answer to this question with the confession, the Christ, the Son of the living God, just as Peter did. It would not be a digression to continue with Matthew's account of the Lord's reaction to this confession, for as with his identity, much confusion has arisen because of theological interpretation of his response. He said, quote, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, where Jesus said, You are the Christ, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's actually pretty good news for us, right? <laughs> that the gates yeah. of hell shall amen. Yeah. yeah, amen, right? But he says, obviously something is amiss here, for in one breath the Lord calls him Simon Bar-Jonah, and in the next Peter. In John 1.42, for example, when Simon Bar-Jonah was called to follow the Lord, Jesus had nicknamed him Cephas, or Kephas actually in the Greek, or more correctly Petros, which of course means a stone. In Isaiah 51.1, Abraham is referred to as a rock, from whence the Israel family was hewn and Peter because he was a chip off that rock, was renamed as Petros, a stone chipped from that rock. Thus, in the Lord's reaction, one is directed to the national family of the Old Testament, the family whose commitment was totally to the accomplishment of God's oath-bound covenant in the earth. And that was only the Israelites. And in the days of Yahshua, it was primarily the house and tribe of Judah, with a lot of Benjamites, and, of course, some Levites, all right? So what we had in Galilee was the Benjamites residing in Galilee, and then somehow the, um, the Samaritans had a, you know, had a nation in between Galilee and Judah. The, thus, the, the Judahites of Judah and the Benjamites of Benjamin were separated by the Samaritans, Okay. And that's why Jesus said when, I, when he sent the apostles, out, go not into any of the city of the Samaritans, but go to the nations. What nations? The Israelite nations. Okay? So, uh, and, and there's all kinds of evidence that uh, only Israel was meant uh, by, by nations. And, and Paul said that the, uh, you know, his tribe of Benjamin, of course, he was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. But his hometown was Tarsus far away from Judah, you know, way up in Asia Minor. So, and all this is evidence that our people were spread out throughout the Greco-Roman world. And that was really the only world that they knew of, right? The, so when the, in, the, in New Testament times, when we speak of the world, or in Greek cosmos, we're not speaking of the entire planet. We're speaking of the Greco-Roman world, so that excludes blacks, it excludes Orientals, it excludes Eskimos, etc., etc. We're only talking about the world that was known 
to our people at that time. And that's what they meant by the word cosmos, right? So modern Judeo-Christians, they, they see the word world, and they think it applies to the entire globe. No, it doesn't, <laughs> because it doesn't mean planet. It means, it means the uh, purview of the Greco-Roman world or the Greco-Roman civilization, which was Israelite. Well, it talks in the Bible about how Rome went to tax the whole world. Well, they didn't come to Australia to tax the Aborigines, yeah, did they? Yeah, I don't think they had the resources to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah, the whole known world is what, what that means. Okay, the world that was under the dominion of the Greeks and then, of course, the Romans. Okay. And that's what it means, tax the whole world. It can't, they can't possibly tax anybody that is not in their dominion, right, in their domain. And uh, you know, so here again, modern translations, and, and you take the modern concept of the word world and try to apply it to the thinking processes and meanings of words in the days of Christ, well, then you're just going to get a false idea of what these people are actually trying to say. You know, you have to put yourself in the historical circumstances and and not modernize the translation, right? Okay. Yeah, so much gets lost in translation. And I pointed out before how here in Brooks, you know, 10 years ago it was half black and half white. And now it's a third black, third white, and third Hispanic. <laughs> right. So if in 10 years, you know, that it can change that much demographically, right. then it's ludicrous to suggest that those who were in the quote-unquote Middle East at that time are the same people who who live there today. Yeah, right. Well, uh, uh, W.G. Finlay continues in the next paragraph, and he says, here was one of the covenant family which acknowledged that he, that is Peter, acknowledged that he, Jesus, was the anointed one as God the Father had promised through his servants, the prophets, who would redeem Israel. Only Israel was promised a redeemer, right? The world was not promised a redeemer, not even in the New Testament. Only Israel was promised a redeemer and make an end of sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, we know that that's an ongoing process because people are still sinning and there's very little righteousness, right? Uh, it was on this confession that the Lord stated he would build or confirm his church, although that word means congregation, not church. Uh, W.G. Finlay continues, It is, of course, a matter of history that theologians prefer the word church to the Greek word ecclesia, for while the Greek word means a called out assembly, people specifically called out. It can't possibly be a reference to everybody, okay? So there's no way that the word ecclesia can mean the whole world or all believers or anything like that, which is how the modern churches interpret it, okay? Which in the days when it was used, it was an exclusive term precluding slaves and aliens, or that is, excluding slaves and aliens. The Greek kuriakos, belonging to the Lord, is preferred because it suits the doctrines of men. Okay? That's why they prefer the word church. In other words, anybody who's a member of our church is, is an Israelite. Right? Sure. That's what they teach. It's incredible. Uh, he continues, if the Lord Jesus Christ intended to build or inaugurate a church on Peter's confession, why did he not use the Greek word kuriakos, which was the etomen or the um, uh, forerunner of the modern English word church? 
Why did he use the word ecclesia, a word which understood by the disciples as having an exclusively national sense? It only applied to Israelites. Okay? So here you have an example of, well, the word church doesn't belong in the New Testament either. Because we think of a church as, you know, a a denomination and, and the church buildings that they have and the brick and mortar church that they go into whereas the ecclesia is simply the congregation of Israelites. That's yeah, that's, I mean. that's a really good point, too, because just as every church claims they're the one and they have all truth, yeah. so also I've heard almost every church say that, yeah, instead of ecclesiastia or ecclesia, it means <laughs> us, well, yeah. you know, the Seventh-day Adventists, we're it. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And so every denomination claims to be the sole heir. <laughs> of this church promise, right? Because they're all fighting amongst each other, which I think in many ways it is a good thing (laughs) that they're fighting with each other. But obviously the ecclesia, the congregation, is exclusively Israel and no other people, okay? And uh, Luke chapter 1, basically chapters 1 and 2 of Luke clearly state that he came for Israel. And if you read Acts very carefully, you'll see there's a big differentiation between Israelites and non-Israelites, okay? And in uh, the Pentecost sermon, Peter addresses the congregation as men of Israel. He doesn't address them as, hey, churchgoers. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Okay. So uh, uh, W.G. Finlay talks about the family line. While the Lord told Peter that flesh and blood had not revealed it to him, but his Father in heaven... The written scriptures today provide their testimony, and one is able to see the identity of the Lord as neither Jew, nor colored, nor universal man. (laughs) There are, of course, two accounts which purport to be the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, but as these are examined, it becomes obvious that they are not the same, and in point of fact, deal with two branches of the same family, two sons of David, Solomon and Nathan. Okay, so... Uh, he goes on to prove that Yahshua is a direct descendant of David, okay, through Mary, who was uh, the, uh, through Nathan, okay, but Joseph was through Solomon, okay. So, uh, but nevertheless, both are derived from the tribe and direct descendants of David, okay, and even the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, addresses Yahshua as son of David. Yeah. Okay? Son of David. Now tell John Hagee. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. What that means, right? Okay. All right, and then uh, he quotes or references uh, the second genealogy. The second genealogy of the Lord is presented in Luke 3, 23 to 38, and is indeed the line of Mary, the human vehicle through which the Word was made flesh, John 1.14. It is absolutely true that Joseph is mentioned as the male head of the line, but unlike the natural generation found in Matthew's statement, Matan begat Jacob, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, etc., no such natural generation is found. In the authorized version, it is stated that he was the son of Heli, and notwithstanding the fact that the word son does not appear in the Greek text and is characterized as such by italics in the authorized version, 
The relationship is derived from his marriage to Mary. He became the son-in-law to Heli. Okay? So in other words, he's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ, both his stepfather Joseph and his mother Mary, were both direct descendants of David, therefore Judahites, pure racial Judahites. Okay? Not a, not a Jew by any means. All right? Sure. And, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, and then uh, the last paragraph on in, in the subject. There is absolutely no evidence to suggest that the Adam of Genesis 1.26, simply translated as man in the authorized version, was given any law, whereas the Adam, again simply translated as man in Genesis 2.7, was certainly given the law as was symbolized in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Having transgressed the law of God, an act which gave rise to the expression sin, 1 John 3.4, it became necessary that propitiation be made for this. Hence the angel statement, he shall save his people from their sins. Does not say he will save the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sins. His people from yes. their sins. Two right. singular statements there. Yes. And so uh, Finlay says, the family line is thus clear and unmistakable and cannot be equated with the contention of universal man, <laughs> or even Jew, for that matter. And so now he gets into the subject of Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. In Matthew 2.33, which deals with the sequel to the death of Herod, who had ordered the massacre of all children under the age of two years. Now, if Herod were a Judahite of the house of Judah, why would he kill his own people, the children of his own people? Yeah. Yeah. Point. Why wouldn't he? Wouldn't he accept? You know, wouldn't Wouldn't the all the Judeans be overjoyed that the Messiah had forgiven their sins? Wouldn't they, Wouldn't the locals be overjoyed about all that? <laughs> right? You would think so. You would think <laughs> so. But not the Edomites, because he didn't come for them. He only came for the Israelites. All right. So, and this is why uh, Herod hated Jesus and hated the thought that he uh, that the true king of Israel might come into the world. Okay, so uh, who, who ordered Herod, who ordered the massacre of all the children under the age of two years? It will be noted that Joseph, having sought safety in Egypt, now decided to return home, and he came to dwell in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. While this statement positively disassociates Jesus of Nazareth from the Jews, or even from uh, Judea, it creates a problem which can only be solved by considering the Hebrew and Greek texts once again. The fallacy of the statement, Jesus the Jew, will become obvious as the subject of Nazareth is explored, and the first step in this direction is the consideration of the word Nazareth itself. The first point which strikes one is that nowhere in the Old Testament does this name appear, which immediately brings into question the authenticity of the statement, he shall be called a Nazarene. If no such place existed in the Old Testament, how could the prophets write about it? Well, the prophets were given their, their, their information by Yahweh, and they didn't often know what, it, what they were repeating, right? Yeah. The Hebrew root which developed into the name Nazareth was Netzer, which literally means a branch and this word is found in the Old Testament and is associated with the situation arising out of Israel's transgression of God's holy law. 
it will be recalled that through Solomon's transgression of the law, the 12-tribe Israel kingdom was divided into two sections. The majority northern kingdom became subject to successive waves of Assyrian invasions until finally, in 721 B.C., its capital, Samaria, was finally taken. If one follows the history of these invasions and notes the degree of impact that these made, it will be noted that while the territory of the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali in the region of the Sea of Galilee were afflicted, there is absolutely nothing to suggest that all the people of these tribes were taken into captivity, as were the Ephraimites of Samaria. Isaiah, who wrote during the period when the Assyrian invasions were taking place, wrote of God's intention to bring the northern kingdom to an end. But in the process, some would be left in the land in the northern regions and away from the center of activity, as it were. Quote, And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. It should be noted that nothing is said of making it disappear altogether. And it shall be as when the harvestman gathereth his corn and reapeth the ears with his arm, and it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephaim. The gleaning grapes shall be left in it as, as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in the utmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. These fruitful branches are written of as para netzer, the word para being dropped, and the people and land simply be known as netzer, which eventually developed into Nazareth. Okay, so he, what he's saying here is that the word Nazareth means this remnant of the northern tribes of Israel that remained in the land and weren't taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Okay? I see, yeah. That's a very good point. And he, and he elaborates on that you know, in, in the rest of the section. Okay? So, and then we know that Nazareth was where Jesus grew up, although he was born in Bethlehem, but he was he grew up in in Nazareth, but Nazareth was in the land of Galilee, which was the territory of Benjamin. Now, the first thing that Jesus did when he began his ministry after he was baptized by John, he went to the synagogue of Capernaum and there preached a sermon from Isaiah, declaring himself to be the promised one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's what I was going to point out as well. Is you know Isaiah, who was a prophet to Israel, straightforwardly said, "Unto us a child is born; that's unto us right. a child is given." Not the whole world. That's right. That's right. So um, the word "us" does not refer. You know, it always refers to Israel, because the covenants were exclusive to Israel. The law was given only to Israel and to no other people, etc., etc., etc. You know. So when you to try to universalize the New Testament. And I think even the dispensationalists and all Judeo-Christians admit that the Old Testament is ex written exclusively to the people of Israel. And there's no doubt about this, and there's no gainsaying it. Yet when it comes to the New Testament, they try to argue, well, because the Jews, who they falsely believed to be Israel, rejected Christ... That opened the gates to the so-called Gentiles or non-Israelites to become grafted in. Yeah. But the Bible says nothing of the kind. 
Yeah, you think about Judeo-Christianity, it really is defeatism, because on the same token, they'll turn around and say, well, the reason Christ had to come was because, well, God in the Old Testament gave all these laws that he knew people wouldn't be able to keep, so Christ had to fix the mess. Right. Well, obviously, he, he only came to forgive Israel's sins, and that was only their past sins, because we're still, you know, even Paul says the wages of sin is death. Okay, the death being overcome does not happen until after the judgment day. So as long as there is death in this world, the kingdom has not come yet, and therefore we're not saved. And even Jesus himself says that only those who overcome will be saved. Okay, so if you're sitting on your couch, clicking your remote, watching football, and listening to the televangelist tell you that you're saved, I'm sorry, you're not saved. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're one of the few who won't be saved, <laughs> or actually one of the many who won't be saved, okay? So, Eli, if I could just um, jump in there for a sec. Yeah. Uh, I know some people listening to this who, who maybe aren't Christian identists are thinking to themselves, okay, so, you know, the, the Old Testament was written to Israelites, and uh, but what about when, when Christ in John chapter 3 spoke to Nicodemus and he said, you must be born again? What was that all about? Is he talking about a... The spiritual Israel that you know non non no. Israelites could be grafted in through the Spirit. What was going no. on there? No, well, the, the, again, it's a bad translation. That, that that translation should read "born from above." You should be born from above. Actually, uh, Jesus actually corrects Nicodemus. Cor- Nicodemus misunderstood him because he said, "Well, can a man come twice out of his mother's womb?" Right. Yeah. Born again, he took he he understood that to be literal, but uh, but Yahshua said no, you must be born from above. Okay, he did not say born again. You must be born from above, and what what does he mean by that? Well, you must be an Israelite that has Yahweh's spirit within you. You must be born from above, and so the churches get that completely wrong too. And, you know, and I've done word studies, you know, and even there's many secular, I, I'm, I'm sorry, non-identity theologians who agree that that passage is badly translated. Okay? So uh, th- this is, uh, you know, in very many subtle ways, these horrible translations uh, invariably lead to a universalization of the gospel. Okay? And, uh, for example, in Galatians, uh, there's a really bad translation of, um, I think it's Galatians 3.26, where it's talking about uh, if you be Christ's, then you are an Israelite, okay? Well, that word there is not apostrophe S. It's not possessive. What it really says, if you be anointed, then you are an Israelite. What? Because sure. the Israelites are an anointed, an anointed people. So the possessive is not there. So the Christ apostrophe S is a deliberately false translation to universalize the text. Yeah, and that well, makes that's interesting. sense, I didn't too. Know that. When you think about that, you know, Christ says, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I am sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It ties so perfectly into the very first commandment to Israel, which is, thou, Israelite, shall have no other gods before me. It's, you know, singular. Right, right. Yeah, well, he is our God. He is the creator of the universe, but he declares himself to be exclusively our God 
literally dozens of times, and that uh, you know other people may worship Yahweh, but he he personally breathed his breath into Adam and Eve in the garden. This was not done to any other race. Okay, he Yahweh himself did that, and there was an episode in the New Testament where Jesus breathed on one of the persons he was healing. So to give his spirit to that person, okay? So directly, okay, this did not happen with the other races. So we belong to Yahweh because of that and also because of Abraham's uh, dedication of Isaac on the altar, right? So that Isaac's direct descendants, in Isaac shall thy seed be called, right? The Anglo-Saxons. That we are people dedicated, i.e. called out, for Yahweh, and no other people have been so dedicated or called out. So, well, it says in the New Testament that um, you are a chosen seed, a holy race. That's right. And that's you know, I mean, how more? You, you couldn't get more specific than that, could you? No, it, it's very specific. But the Judeo Christians never quote that passage, <laughs> right? It's like it doesn't exist. Yes. Yeah. And so, uh, getting back to. Uh, when Jesus was in the uh, synagogue and proclaiming himself to be the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah, well, even his brethren, the Benjamites, wanted to throw him over a cliff for having made such a statement. Uh, Now let's fast forward to the modern world. Would all these Judeo-Christians accept a racially exclusive Jesus Christ, even if he came again? Not not in this day and age, they wouldn't. No, they, wouldn't they try to crucify him all over again? Sure they would. They sure would. They'd be thrown in jail here in Australia, that's for sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the the Abor- aborigines of Australia wouldn't like it at all. You know. By, by the way, how's the, I hear there's all kinds of uh, Chinese and Orientals flooding your country. Is that, is that what's happening? Oh, yes. Well, our country's been flooded with the, the Asian community for years, starting uh, in the late 1970s, but now we're oh. getting Somalis, um, Muslims, Arabs Ooh. galore. Um, you know, if it's non-white, we're getting it in droves. Yes, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're trying to destroy every white nation with non-white immigration, you know, silent genocide. You know, kill us Yes, well, tomorrow, tomorrow, on the show tomorrow, Eli, I'm going to be talking about a guy called Jerzy Zubrinski, I think his name was. And he's known, he was a, a Polish Jew who emigrated to Australia, I think it was in 1958. And he's known as the architecture, or, or the architect rather, right. or the father of Australian multiculturalism. Right. So no matter where you put a Jew in the world, he'll do exactly the same thing, bring in exactly. non-whites and destroy that, the white host nation. Yes, right. And then uh, let me just jump down. He talks about Judea and its inhabitants. The name Judea was a territorial and not a racial or tribal one, and when it is considered that the modern English word Jew is derived from the historical Judea, it will be seen that a geographical and not racial term has been perpetuated. Okay? In other words, the word Jew does not derive from the word Judah, as we discussed earlier. It derives from the multicultural nation of Judea, which is a territorial or um, you know, name of a country. All right? And then he talks about the inscription on the cross. Notwithstanding the scriptural facts as presented above, there are still those who insist on using the inscription on the cross 
Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, as the basis for their identification of him with the Jews. Despite the fact that he had categorically stated that they, the Jews, were not of God in John 8:47, and that they were not my sheep in John 10:26, despite this, there are still those who persist in identifying him as a Jew. The subject of the inscription on the cross is a very poor basis for identification, for apart from it being an English translation, and incorrectly translated at that, it might surprise many people to realize that the inscription was changed three times during the period of the crucifixion. All that is necessary to confirm something surrounding the confusion created by the inscription is to study the Gospel accounts again and note the series of events as they are related in the four Gospels. Uh, so let me just cut to the chase here. In Latin, this title read, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum. And an accurate English translation of this is, Jesus, the Nazarene ruler of the Judeans. Wow. Okay, that's the correct translation. It identifies him, one, as a Nazarene, not as a Judean. Okay. And I forget which gospel account says the words were written mockingly. Yeah, sure. Okay. So they're not to be taken literally. So when Jesus was... Uh, spoken to by Pontius Pilate and he asked him are you king of the Jews his response was you say that I am well he was the king of he was he is to be the king of Israel not of some multicultural state called Judea okay thou sayest it I believe thou sayest yeah right yeah in the King James so he did not accept that designation he was not intended to be the king of Judea, he was intended to be the king of Israel, okay? And he will be at the second coming, okay? So he continues to say, which, and this correct translation, which far from making him a Judean, establishes him as a Nazarene, which is obviously not a Judean, okay? So here again, the confusion of the word Jew as it's used to apply to Old Testament Judahites, which is totally false, and, uh, What's New Testament Judeans of a multicultural state? That's the only proper usage of the word Jew, and you have to exclude the true Judahites of Judea from the designation Jew because they're not Jews; they're Judahites. All right. So when um when when Pilate um got that inscription written. Yeah. Um, and it said um, Christ was a Nazarene and he was, you know, the king of Judea. What he was really doing, Pilate, was having a, a sly dig at the Jews, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Well, and, and, and Pilate washed his hands of the entire crucifixion affair, which was an act of state. He even pronounced him innocent of any wrongdoing. So when the Jews say that the Romans killed Christ, they're absolutely lying. But again, the Judeo-Christians don't even read their New Testaments they simply take the word of the pulpiteers, who they, you know, whose every word they hang on every Sunday, and they never read the Bible themselves. Okay? So what do we say to people then, Eli, who say, oh, but the Romans nailed him to the cross? Well, uh, there may have been a contingent of Roman soldiers under the direction of the scribes and Pharisees, but uh, clearly Pontius Pilate turned Jesus over back to the scribes and Pharisees who illegally tried him, okay? 
Now, here, there's something, uh, you ha- uh, there's a politics and economics going on here because there's a, I don't know if, if W.G. Finlay addresses this. I don't think he does. That the, the Pharisees threatened to go to, uh, I think it was Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar at the time, and accuse Pontius Pilate of being a, um, you know, a, a reprobate, and that uh, that he was uh, by not cooperating with them, he was precipitating, and, and even Jesus himself was precipitating a civil war. Okay, well, the last thing that Tiberius Caesar would want is a, uh, a cessation of tribute money coming from Judea, right? So. The scribes and Pharisees had Pontius Pilate over a barrel if he if he actually tried to take military action against the scribes and Pharisees who had control of the purse strings of Judea, well Tiberius would not like that at all, and Tiberius would have quickly recalled Pontius Pilate. Okay? So he was a wage slave for lack of a better term. There truly is nothing new under the sun. That's right. That's right. It's all about money and the scribes and Pharisees. Now, here's an interesting thing. In the Old Testament, there's no record at all, and even in the Apocrypha, there's no record at all of money changers running their uh, changing and selling doves and, and selling sacrificial animals outside the temple. Okay? There was nothing like that. Yeah, I've noticed that, actually. That seems to be like a, an addition or a Hollywoodization. Well, no, no, no. That actually did happen, but it wasn't the Levites who were doing that. Herod actually imported priests from Babylon. Ah. It, it even, he even names one of the priests. He imported a high priest, I think his name was Anenelus, from Babylon to be the high priest that year. And so it was these Babylonian priests affiliated with the Edomites of Idumea who set up their money-changing tables outside the temple. Ah. Okay? So here again, it wasn't the Judahites, and it certainly wasn't the Levites that ever set up the money-changing tables. Again, it's the Jews, the foreigners. Like always, wherever there's a dollar to be made, they're out there selling (laughs) mite-infested doves for people to make uh, sin <laughs> right. atonements for, yeah, go figure. Right. So, you know, and, and the Judeos and the Jews themselves never discuss, you know, well, where did these money changers come from? Because there's no record of them being part of the tribe of Judah, and that would be forbidden anyway, okay? And, and the tribe of Judah, they, they weren't money changers. There were no money changers among our people. They were They were foreigners, either Edomites or Babylonians. Yeah, that's a valid point because Yahweh's law also forbids usury, so it would have been a violation for even the tribe of Judah. That's right, and they never did that. You know, obviously, uh, individuals within Judah and within Benjamin, and of course, within the ten northern tribes, uh, illegally charged people they loaned money to usury. Okay, but it was never state practice. Never. Okay. Yeah, that did not happen until these foreigners took control of the temple grounds. Okay? So it's very important to notice that because, here again, it's proof that we're talking about Edomites and Canaanites. What does the word Canaanite mean besides the son of Cain? It means merchant. 
merchant, sure. trafficker. All right? So who are we talking about? Who are the world's best-known merchants and traffickers? Yeah. <laughs> right? The human traffickers. Yeah. Even. Yeah. yeah, and they traffic in human beings, too. Yes. Now, uh, he quotes, well, actually... I'm reading this essay, I was reminded of Romans 9.26, which is actually a uh, Paul quoting, I believe, Hosea. But it says this, And it shall come to pass, that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. This is a very important prophecy because it actually relates to the end times. And it shall come to pass that in the place where we true Israelites are being told, you are not God's chosen people, because everybody falsely believes that the Jews are God's chosen people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. In other words, the time is coming when people will finally realize that we Caucasian Israelites are the true Israelites and the Jews are not. Yeah, that's such a beautiful prophecy, too. I'm, that's amazing that you brought that up because I believe that's one that's quite often overlooked within Christian identity. Well, yeah, and, and because the Judeos have, could not possibly explain what it means, <laughs> right? Yeah. So if, if the Jews, if it means the Jews... Uh, then, uh, you know, well, everybody says the Jews are God's chosen people. So, you know, there's not going to be any change there if you continue to believe that, right? But we, Caucasian Israelites, have been falsely accused of not being his people. And then the world is going to realize that we are. Yeah. Okay? So that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 9.26. See, Paul's prophecies, you know, let me put it this way. The churches have done a bang-up job of distorting his epistles. And, and I think one of the reasons why is because, you know, Paul visited Rome, okay, and he visited places, many places. He was also a Roman citizen. So that uh, his writings were available to, you know, the Roman officials and were probably preserved by the Romans more so than the Gospels and the epistles of the other, you know, the other apostles. So they had plenty of time and opportunity to work Paul's epistles to death, <laughs> right? And yeah. to translate them in a universalist way. Well, because why? Why would the Catholic Church, who inherited all of this literature, why would the Catholic Church be interested in universalizing the Gospels? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, when their name means universal. That's right. Catholic <laughs> means universal, <laughs> right? They'd have a vested interest in that one. Yeah, because the Catholic Church was an imperialistic empire who wanted to subjugate all nations using religion, okay? The Catholic Church was nothing but an imperialistic empire using religion uh, to uh, control people. And that's what, exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Sure. Okay? Sure, and that's pretty much what they still do today with that sentiment. Right. Yeah. That's right. And I grew up Catholic. Uh, I left Catholicism when Vatican II came along, because well, Vatican II changed all of the, uh, you know, the rituals, and uh, they, they, they reversed the, uh, the placing of the altar, 
uh, and you know they they turned it from Latin into English. But they also uh, John the twenty third also wrote Pacem in Terrace, which was uh, an announcement that the Catholic Church would no longer oppose communism. Wow. Okay. So well, it, it stands the reason, though, if you think about it. Universalism goes hand in hand with right. globalism. That's right. So Vatican II, uh, John the Twenty Third was actually a Freemason. Uh, he was a member of Propaganda Douay in Italy. So uh, the Freemasons uh, in the 1930s uh, vowed that they would place one of their agents on the Vatican throne, and he was the one. I see, yeah. Yeah, okay. Since then, the Catholic Church has been totally controlled by the Jews because the Freemasons are basically a Jewish entity. Yeah, and that stands to reason, too, because the Catholic Church will come along like they, they did a few years ago, and they'll say, uh, well, you know, the Bible isn't meant to be taken literally. It's all <laughs> metaphor. Right. And that's, that becomes their new dogma, you know? Seemingly yeah. every Catholic has to follow that. Yeah. Yeah, everything is either spiritualized or universalized so that the literal meaning and references to the children of Israel are totally ignored, you know, or... or uh, so distorted that you can't you can't see what it's really saying you know and plus when you uh, brainwash people into believing well this this statement uh, even though it might be a simple declarative sentence where Paul says I am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin you know they will say well that doesn't mean anything <laughs> right yeah <laughs> yeah he he was he was a gentile no he wasn't he was an Israelite <laughs> okay yeah, oh, exactly. There's... I think Paul knows what he is better than we do, you know. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, just because he grew up in Tarsus. Now, uh, here's something about Tarsus, uh, Paul of Tarsus, and uh, where Peter says that his speech is difficult to understand. And it's not because, you know, he was teaching, you know, uh, uh, you know fancy prose and stuff like that, that, you know, uh, there were, there were passages in Paul's writing where he, he is a, a preacher, right? And he's trying to rouse the Israelites and, and encourage them, etc. But Paul was a student of rhetoric because he was brought up as a Greek in, in the Greco-Roman world. And so the Israelites spoke primarily in simple declarative sentences. You know, like one and one equals two. Uh, Mary loves John. <laughs> right? yeah. in, in simple declarative sentences. However, rhetoric uh, included lots of conjunctive clauses uh, strung together with ifs, ands, buts, therefores, and what ifs, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and so sometimes you could you know, have a sentence, and this is typical in Paul's writing. You can have a sentence that stretches out over two or three chapters because he, he's thinking in rhetorical terms rather than in simple declarative terms. Okay, and that's why Peter says Paul's speech is hard to understand. But even more so, uh, because he was not a native Judean or a native Benjamite, he must have had an accent that they couldn't understand, right? So there were all kinds of things going into play here. And, of course, Luke, and I forget who his other uh, secretary was, you know, they had to take down what he said because uh, I think he was blind in one eye, and he was also partially lame. So he had a lot of health problems, 
and uh, you know he he wasn't, and he admits he wasn't a very great communicator, right? And yeah. Part of, yeah, but he was uh, having been brought up as a Roman citizen of Tarsus. He uh, he he used that to you know his advantage when the Pharisees wanted to take him prisoner. He declared uh, to the uh, gatekeeper uh, or the prison keeper, "Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, I want protective custody from you guys," and they gave it to him. Yeah, he truly was wise as serpent. Yes, he outsmarted him. He outsmarted him. So if the Jews are the ones that are persecuting the Christian Israelites in the New Testament, who are these Jews then? Okay. Yeah, Paul himself says even he received 40 stripes, save one. Yes, right, yeah. And if the Jews are persecuting the Israelites of the tribe of Benjamin, then we have to ask, who are these people really? You know, isn't it absurd to think that the Jews, if they were Israel, why would they reject the salvation of their souls and give it to other people? <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, as they, as the Judeo-Christian world turns around and says that the Christ killer is God's chosen, you know, it seems to me like common sense would dictate that the true Israel of the Old Testament would be looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, because that's, that's what right. it says. That's right. And the Old Testament prophesied that the children of Israel would accept him. Absolutely. Okay. And they did. And still do. And they still do. And the Jews never will. Eli, um, yeah. Eli, when, when Christ is depicted, especially in um, Catholic imagery, is always depicted as this solid-skinned kind of Jewish-looking guy. Yeah, right. I read an article last year called Why Was Jesus White? And I include a number of historical quotes from people such as Herodotus, um, Pontius Pilate, uh, a couple of other people that uh, Jesus was white. But, um, you know, to all of the um, perhaps unlearned people who might be tuning into this and, you know, thinking, oh, you know, what are they going on about Jesus was a Jew, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, he looked like a Jew. All the, all the paintings say he looked like a Jew, even though we don't have a photograph of Christ, of course. Sure. But um, why should we believe that Jesus was, in fact, white? Well, uh, the, you know, there are historical documents on my website. I have uh, the letter of Pilate to Tiberius Caesar, where he describes Jesus having blue eyes and blonde hair and being uh, somewhat taller than most of the people around him. There's another document uh, that quoted there that says that his hair was blonder than his mother's. Okay. And uh, fair and ruddy. What does fair and ruddy mean? <laughs> David was fair and ruddy. Okay. The Judahites were fair. Fair means white. Ruddy means blush. Okay. And, and we don't we don't see any Jews or other races blushing. Only the white race blushes. Okay. Uh, in my dictionary here, I have one of these old collegiate dictionaries. If you look up the word fair, the very first entry means to be white. I see. They have white skin. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And I'm reminded of where it talks about David, who Christ is a son of, quote-unquote, in the New Testament. When Goliath sees him in the Old Testament account, he disdains him because he was but a youth and ruddy and of fair countenance. There you go. So it says, like right there, there's three keys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair countenance, meaning white skin. Yeah. And he was the son of David, so he must be white just like David. Exactly. Exactly. And Paul says, Jesus was born under the law. What does that mean? There was no race mixing in his genealogy. 
Yeah. That ties perfectly into John 8:44, where he tells the Jews they are of their father, the devil, and right. they retort by saying, we be not born of fornication. Right. Now, uh, now there's some interesting passages, uh, 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, I'll, start, I'll just read from 6, 14 to 18, where we are told. Now, this applies, you know, whether, whether we're talking about white people or just Christians, this would apply but we, we find that the Judeo-Christians don't heed the Apostle Paul's warning here. He says, be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Sure. But what are we doing? What are they doing hanging around with Jews? Yeah, that's a good point. I've, I've often wondered why these quote-unquote missionaries go over to Israel, or at right. least the Middle East, and they have a New Testament in their hand, and they really are shocked when they get over there and find out that the New Testament is outlawed over that's there. That's right. Yeah, you they know. could be put in jail for five years for uh, trying to proselytize a Jew, right? I mean, if you can if you can stand being spit in the face by a Jew, <laughs> go ahead and proselytize, right? Be my guest. All right. Eli, um, yeah. I'm looking at that, that verse you just read out there in the Amplified version there, and it okay. says, it makes a, an interesting addition. It says, it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but then it says, do not make mismated alliances with them. Okay. So, I mean, that, 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 that right. sort of brings out the idea that, you know, we're not to, to race mix. Right, yeah. Right. And, yeah, in fact, I, I think it's actually... Uh, a reference, an oblique reference to the Old Testament where you're not supposed to yoke a horse and an ox together, right? Because the the two different animals, they, they want to work at different speeds, you know, and they have different, uh, you know, strengths, okay? So it, it doesn't work. You can't uh, yoke an, uh, a horse and an oxen together. You always have to have two oxen or two horses, you know? And yeah, so the, and it is a definite indication that race, race mixing is forbidden too. Yeah. So yeah, and it continues. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? So he's saying that all unbelievers, we're, we're not to have communion with them. We're not to fellowship with them. What are we supposed to do? As Israelites, we are supposed to set a national, a racially segregated national example, which throughout history, when our nations have followed Yahweh's laws, people of other races from their nations are immediately attracted to us as America in our first century was like the wonder of the world. Okay? Because we had freedom, and nobody else had it. Right? Uh, Arabs uh, would write essays saying the people in America have guns. (laughs) Right? They're allowed to carry guns. That's unheard of. Right? And there's no no gates or walls around their cities. Okay? Ezekiel 39.11. Israel shall dwell in a land of unwalled villages. Can't be Palestine. Right? No, why? No. Okay. Verse 15, And what concord has Christ with Belial, or Baal? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, 
I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, speaking only of Israel, and they shall be my people, speaking only of Israel. Wherefore, come out from among them. And be ye separate. Yeah, that's right. And be <laughs> ye separate. This is teaching racial segregation. Says Yahweh, and touch not the unclean. Now the KJV makes an addition here. A very deceptive addition. It, it includes the word thing. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, gentlemen, what's the context here? Yeah. What's the context? Are we talking about things? And people. No, we're talking we're about talking, people. We're talking about people. This word thing has no business being in the translation. It should say, touch not the unclean. Namely, these people, these infidels, these unbelievers, touch them not, and I will receive you. Now, can I just ask you one quick question about that, Eli? Because it's yeah. interesting. In, in, in the Amplified Version, it has thing too, and I certainly don't believe the Amplified Version is the perfect ver version, but I would assume that the guys who did the Amplified Version knew their way around the, the Greek fairly well and would know that thing should be um, a person or right. a people. Yeah. So, so uh, are, they deliberately do, are they doing this deliberately, knowing that if they put person, then you know, that would mean some people are unclean That's and right. has racial connotations, <laughs> so they right. leave it out because of that? That's right. That's right. Well, first of all, most of these other versions are taken from the King James, okay? And most of these new versions simply... Uh, pick out verses here and there that they thought were perhaps badly translated and then the rest of the time they simply follow the King James okay so but in the, the the nice thing about the King James is that when the when the King James adds a word that's not in the original Greek it italicizes the word I don't know if the amplified does that okay so here in the King James it is italicized, meaning it's not in the original text. But just from the context, from the context, it's obvious that we're not talking about things. We're talking about people. Yeah, it should read, touch not the unclean, period. That's right. Okay. And, and then very often in the, in the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, it, we, we would call this uh, not a gerund, but it's, it, it's a... Uh, it's a an adjective used as a noun, okay, with the noun implied, okay. So touch not the unclean person is what's meant, but uh, they just use the word unclean that you know, because you know the context means people, you don't have to use the word person in the sentence. So you just use the word unclean as a noun, okay. And that's what's going on here. That's why the word thing does not belong. It definitely, if they had added the word person, that would make more sense, right? But it's not necessary, because we understand what's being said. Okay? And uh, and then uh, he's, he's quoting all kinds of Old Testament passages here. Right? And will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says Yahweh Almighty. Hosea 1.10. He's repeating the exclusive covenants of Israel you know, without fail, without ambiguity. 
However, the translators do their best to make it ambiguous. Okay? We have to understand that the King James Version, because even King James, you see, his version was uh, commissioned because the Geneva Bible was popular in those days, and the Geneva Bible was being used by the Puritans and by the pilgrims. Okay? And those people were congregationalists who did not want to belong to the Anglican Church. So in order to com- he he commissioned a competing translation to try to drive the Geneva Bible out of circulation. That's what King James' real motivation was. He was trying to uphold the Anglican Church, and the Anglican Church uh, was also imperialistic, universalistic in its own way, not as bad as the Catholic Church, but in its own way, because why? Well, he was a king, and he wanted to expand his empire, right? So they didn't object to the universalization of the New Testament. Absolutely. Right? And it seems like many empires, from Rome to Babylon and Assyria, even Egypt, all fall when they allow and tolerate you know, this multiculturalist or the aspect that every person can serve their own God and we're all one. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, let me just, uh, one more quotation from Paul, because it's very, it's very important that we understand that the writings of Paul have been terribly tampered with, and that uh, the translations are really horrible. <laughs> uh, Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. There's, there's a nice, simple declarative sentence from Paul. What does this mean? Isn't he directly quoting the Old Testament? Where it means that to, to Abraham and his seed, that is this direct descendants. That's what it means, offspring. It means descendants. So to Abraham and his descendants were the promises made. Plural. Seed, seed is a collective noun which means descendants. Okay? It also can mean uh, grapes. It can also mean corn. It can also mean wheat. But it's talking about a, a genus, okay? It's talking about a genus. We're only talking about the direct descendants of Abraham, okay? He said not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. Now the word Christ here is capitalized, however... What Paul is really saying here is that the promises were made to only one seed line. Not to other seed lines as many, but as of one seed line, and to your seed line, which is anointed. That's what this verse is really saying. So what we're looking at here, Eli, is the fact that um, the Bible... Yahweh plays favorites. He, he's not. Jesus doesn't love all the children of the world. He only loves Israelite well, children. Uh, okay. he, he, Let me put it this way: uh, Yahweh loves the whole creation, you know, because He made it. Uh, well, but we had this rebellion of the fallen angels under Lucifer, okay, and we and that has to be gotten rid of, okay. So there's, uh, it's He loves His whole creation, but He play He does play favorites. He has chosen a particular race of people to 
exemplify his will and to organize the government of the planet under us. Okay? So Jesus says, I think it's in Matthew or John 15, I am the vine, you Israelites are the branches. It is this tree, it is this family tree of Israel that is supposed to have dominion over the world. But not in the sense of imperialism, but in the sense of service by having a just and righteous government which none of these other races could possibly establish. Now I know I know Eli that some people in Christian identity don't believe that um, you know there will be any non-whites um, post Christ's return, yeah. and it'll just be Israelites in in the world. And you know I, I don't get into arguments with people about these things one right. way or the other because essentially what you're doing is getting into arguments with people about non-whites, and I really don't care much, yeah, all that right. much for for non-whites. But but the Bible says He has placed our laws in our his laws right. I beg your pardon in our heart yeah, in our heart and, and we've, yeah. we've we've been given the ability to obey Yahweh's law so if we're going to rule and reign over um, mm-hmm. Israelites as well as non non-Israelites in the yeah. in the age to come in a national how, sense how, in a national sense not as uh, people living together right because our our DNA must be kept separate otherwise our ability to rule justly will disappear Okay. But my question is, how can how uh, if these non-whites are to obey Yahweh's law, how can they do that when the law hasn't been placed in their hearts, where, where they don't have the the ability, the spiritual ability to be able to do that? Well, that's the, what the rod of iron is all about. <laughs> he will rule with a rod of iron. Okay. We Israelites are supposed to incorporate the law within ourselves, and that's the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 37, okay, that the law will be written in our hearts. That's exclusive to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, all right? It's not, it doesn't include any other people. So it's under our dominion, and it goes back to the, the statement of dominion in Genesis chapter 1, the verses 27 through 30, where the Adamic race was created for dominion, Okay. It's, uh, it wasn't the, the, the word there is Adam, Adam, to show blood in the face. Dominion was given to the Adamic race, not to all races. So you believe basically that the the non-whites are going to be allowed to to exist, but they'll just be in their own countries, and you right. know, um, yeah. But, but it, it, it will be the Israelites will have to obey right. the law itself. Exactly, and and we should do so not out of grudging uh, worry about being punished for disobedience, but we should do so out of love for the law, understanding its significance and for the fact that the, Yahweh created the law for us so that we could you know, order, bring this world back into order under the law, after, especially after the Jews, the Edomites, are, uh, as uh, your namesake Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, Abundantly proved. Not my real name. <laughs> right. <laughs> but here, uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, actually, I just wrote an essay called Crumbs, which uh, takes to task uh, William Fink's notion and uh, F. M. Heiser's notion that only whites will survive the Judgment Day. Uh, also, the book of uh, Zechariah, chapter 14, 
clearly states that the nations attacking us at the uh, at the end, in the end times, the survivors of those nations, and we're being attacked by Mexicans, blacks, Jews, uh, Puerto Ricans. Although some Puerto Ricans uh, complain that they're not, <laughs> I got an email from a Puerto Rican saying, "Hey, you you shouldn't lump us in with those other people." <laughs> I said, "Okay, fine," <laughs> but uh, it clearly says that the survivors of those nations that are trying to destroy us now, the survivors will practice the Feast of Tabernacles under our dominion. Read chapter 14 for yourself. Now. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, where Moses talks about the Israelites and how they are not, let me just read verse 2, you shall not add to the word which I commanded you, neither shall you diminish anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Okay? This is a total refutation of Talmudism because all that the rabbis ever do is add to the law of Moses and subtract from it and then make things up, right? So this is more proof that Judaism is a crock. Verse 3, your eyes have seen what Yahweh did because of Baal Peor for all the men that followed Baal Peor and Yahweh your Elohim has destroyed them from among you. But you Now if we obey his laws, he will destroy our enemies. The Bible says this hundreds of times. Verse 4, But you that did cling to Yahweh your God are alive, every one of you, this day. Those who didn't, died. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as Yahweh my God commanded me, this is Moses speaking, that you should do so in the land where you go to possess it. Now listen, verse 6, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So in other words, the law has been given to us so that the other nations will appreciate who we are. Yeah, and, and I'm reminded of uh, Jacob and, and Uncle Laban in that, because it seems like, you know, with him selling his two daughters over, he recognized that through Jacob he was he was blessed as a farmer and agriculturally wise. Yes. So he, he was trying to hold on to Jacob as long as he could. Right, exactly. <laughs> and verse, verse 7 amplifies the thought, For what nation is there so great who has God so near to them, as Yahweh our Elohim is in all things that we call upon him for. And what nation is there so great that his has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But teach them to your sons and to your sons' sons. Okay? The law belongs to us. It was given only to Israel. But it is our practice of the law which will make us stand apart from the other nations of the world and make those other nations understand that we are his chosen people. Eli, Eli if I can ask you this question, because it's, yeah. um, it's really sort of got me curious. I was reading an article some time ago by a fellow called uh, Arnold Ken Kennedy, a uh, yeah. New Zealand Christian identist. Right. And he was right. He, his contention is that um, when Christ returns and talks about how he's going to gather up, uh, gather Israel from the four corners of the earth, they're going to go back to Palestine, to Israel. 
Yes, he um, but, there, that. but I know most Christian identists tend to believe that, the, that, that yeah. Jerusalem is is America. So where are Israelites going to actually dwell geographically? Do well, you think? Uh, Joshua and both Moses said that wherever we set our feet, that land belongs to us. So in other words, wherever Yahweh drives us, we are to take possession of the land. And that's what our people have done. The white race has been the colonial race, right? The problem is that wherever we have gone, the Jew has followed us and set up their usurious banking operations and their vice rackets and their commerce and blah, 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 destroying what we produce, right? So it, it, colonialism is not evil. It's the Jew following us that, that, that disrupts and distorts and destroys what we, what we build, okay? Arnold Kennedy was... So, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, please, go ahead. Yeah, oh, I was just going to say, so when it talks about gathering people from Israelites from the, the four corners of the earth, is it talking about gathering the Israelites who are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, or is it talking about actual uh, Israelites who are going to stay on the earth and be ruled over by the Israelites who have been faithful Christians? Right. Well, well, there's, there's phases in which the Israelite people will be gathered, and uh, globally speaking, uh, it's really talking about Yahweh drawing his people back to himself. Okay, not to a particular oh, right. territory. Okay. okay. Now, what uh, what Arnold Kennedy was talking about? He was talking about a specific prophecy that says the Israelites shall possess the territory from the Tigris and Euphrates to the river of Egypt, being the Nile. Well, that was fulfilled in the days of Christ because the Parthians were Israelites that controlled all of Mesopotamia, east of the Roman Empire. Okay. The Romans were Israelites that controlled Rome and Egypt, right? And, of course, the Israelites were still there. Uh, Israelites proper of Judah and Benjamin were there in Palestine. So th the fact is that that prophecy was fulfilled by our people in those days. Okay. Okay, see, he, he wasn't aware of the Parthians. He wasn't aware. Well, this is good news because I can stay in Australia, and if I had to spend an eternity in Australia, <laughs> yeah, right. I wouldn't mind. I love this country. Right, and and the word Jerusalem is often used figuratively for Israel, the Israel people. It's not always used as a literal place. Okay, there is what's called prophetic Jerusalem. Prophetic Jerusalem is Israel regathered, yeah, either regathered in a place or, or gathered back to Yahweh. You know, and, and in fact. And uh, let's let this be the final thought, because Jesus Christ actually cursed the literal city of Jerusalem. I think it's at the end. It's either at the end of Matthew 23 or at the end of Matthew 24. And uh, he he placed a curse upon the city of Jerusalem until a particular event takes place, and that event has not happened yet. Uh, okay. Uh, here we go. Here's Matthew 23. Yes. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, he was standing in Jerusalem when he was, spoke these words. You that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Now, he's talking about Israelites, too, who refuse to obey Yahweh's laws. Right? Because remember, Judea was a multicultural state that had Judahites and Edomites. Now, now, certainly the Edomites, he's not talking about gathering Edomites. He could care less about Edomites. They're his enemies. Verse 38, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Talking about the house 
of Judah in Judea because the vast majority of these Judahites did not accept him. Remember a prophet, yeah, it says, he came into his own and his own received him not. Yeah. Only a few of his people actually received him. Verse 39, for I say to you, and that's true today too, for I say to you, you shall not see me hereafter till you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of Yahweh, or in this case, uh, divinity, uh, theos in the Greek, okay? The high God, the most high God, all right? So Jerusalem is still under this curse because the city of Jerusalem has not accepted Jesus Christ, and it never will as long as there's Jews there. Yeah, okay? that's true. So the literal city of Jerusalem is under this curse, and it was cursed in the Old Testament too. So when it's talking, Eli, about the desert blooming as a rose, yeah. what, is that just a metaphorical thing or a literal thing? No, it's, it's thing talking or? about the, the, the Israelites uh, turning the deserts of Western America into the uh, heartland of wheat and corn and uh, soybeans, you know, etc. The, the Jews don't farm. There's no such thing as a Jewish <laughs> farmer, right? right? So uh, that's talking about wherever we Israelites go, uh, our people will turn it into a paradise uh, of agriculture. Well, they've done that with Australia. I mean, this is the, the most arid continent on earth. And yeah. look what we've done to it. That's right. And it wasn't Jews that did that, <laughs> was it? <laughs> yeah, it right. wasn't the Aborigines either. I That's can tell you right. That. That's right. So, uh, you know, the word Jerusalem, as uh, just about every other word in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, has a literal de designation, but it often has a metaphorical designation. And, you know, so in those cases, you know, so you have to study these prophecies uh, and uh, are, are the, is the word Jerusalem being used metaphorically representing Israel or is it used, being used literally to represent the, the literal city of Jerusalem, okay? Well, in this case, it's the literal city of Jerusalem because, because that's who he was talking to, the, the Judahites who were living in Jerusalem in these days, you know. But now you go to Zechariah chapter 14. It's talking about a future Jerusalem. That, and, and, and Ezekiel, it's a land of unwalled cities, right? So you, you have to understand that you know, from the identity point of view, the, uh, the, the literal seed of Israel is always implied. And it's never, uh, it's never metaphorical. Israel is, is almost never metaphorical or spiritual. In fact, the Old Testament says the spiritual man is mad. Okay? So they take the literal, those verses that have literal meaning and try to spiritualize them in order to refute them. And that's what the Judeo-Christians do. So, for example, the word salvation. Uh, I did a word study uh, on the word salvation and found out that in both Testaments, in the Hebrew and the Greek, it means the physical preservation of the 12 tribes, or at least the remnants of those 12 tribes, so that all 12 tribes will be physically preserved. So its true meaning is like salvage. I will salvage Israel. There, there will always be a remnant of all of the 12 tribes. It has no spiritual connotation whatsoever. 
yeah, try as the modern Judeo-Christian world does, because they try to spiritualize everything. That's right. It is amazing how when you really look at the marks of Israel, or you look at the prophecies that are given to us, or even in the law, yeah. it, it's very literal. It's not spiritualized at all, for the That's most right. part. That's right. Yeah, so uh, it's very, you know, these, you have to take words at their meanings as they were used by the Hebrew prophets and by the Greek-speaking apostles. And what did those words mean when they used them, right? Not what they mean today by certain cults like the Jews and the Judeos. And in fact, the Westminster Confession states that if there's any problem or a dispute arises over the proper meaning of any given verse, what we're supposed to do is go back to the original Hebrew and the original Greek, find out what those words mean, and then resolve the conflict that way. Okay? And that's what we do in identity. For the yeah, for the most part. Yes. You, for the most you know, part. there are some out there who want to beat each other over the head over a minute difference of doctrine and right. that but I'll, that's <laughs> that's always been the focus of Obadiah and yeah. this you know, this show is always try to you know right. have unity because Paul stresses it so much. Right. That's why I wear a helmet. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right guys. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, oh, excellent. I definitely appreciate it. And I know that this is one of those shows that's going to be downloaded several times yeah. because there's a lot to digest here. Yeah, and, and one further thing, I am not a universalist. <laughs> <laughs> Contrary to what yeah, yeah, right. the enemy likes saying. That's right. Okay. All right, Obadiah. Best All right, Mr. Eli. Thank you Take, so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Yahweh bless. Yahweh bless. Take care. Good night. Definitely. Bye. Right. Thank you. Definitely. And I meant that, Obadiah. You know, this this is going to be one of those highly downloaded broadcasts like the Bob Jones interview we did a couple, about a month or so ago, because there's just so much, you know, biblical and spiritual meat in that. Yeah, and I hope, to, I really hope and pray, Jeremy, that because we had Eli on the show, that people don't think, you know, I know some people think Eli is a universalist and is this and that, but I hope they don't think that, you know, we're, you know, we're going to start preaching that, you know, you can be um, a, a bit non-white and still be an Israelite or anything like that, because we, we certainly wouldn't do anything like that. But, um, you know, I would like this show to be seen as kind of neutral country. And, uh, and, you know, that's kind of, that might be an impossible task, an impossible do in Christian identity. But, um, you know, I'd like to invite pretty much every Christian identist on, well, not every, literal, literally every Christian identist, but a lot of sort of differing, perhaps, Christian identists on the show, you know, um, in the coming weeks and months. And I was thinking, you know, how we were, we were discussing how we'd like to have a show discussing the, the, the hard sayings of the Bible. You know, um, like they were talking on the News Guy show the other day about how it says in the Bible if, you, you, if an Israelite rapes a, a foreign woman or something, then they can become, um, you know, he can marry her. You know, I, I forget the exact verse. Do you know the one I'm talking about there? I believe I know it. The Virgin of Dowries. Basically, if if a, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Where in the law it talks about the uh, if a man is found with a maid and he pays the virgin a dowry, he can marry her for the most part. Yeah, yeah I, I think it may have been something else, but anyway, I, I reckon Bill Fink would be a great guy to invite on for the show and um, you know discuss some of the hard the harder sayings in the Bible that people always, especially you know. People, atheists always bring up to say oh yeah but you say you know god is a god of love and why did he say this and why did he do this and why did you know women who are menstruating have to do this so um 
So if, if Bill's listening, you've got an invite to come on the show, Bill, sometime. That would be interesting as well, to ask you because, you know, Solomon makes no qualms about it. He straightforwardly says in Proverbs, to make wise the simple, to give instruction, and to more or less, for lack of a better term, to paraphrase, to make light the quote-unquote dark sayings. There are numerous dark sayings within Scripture. Now, Jeremy, I have to get going now, but um, before I go, are you able to play audio on the show? I mean, you know, able to play a song or something like that? Does that present a, a major problem? Uh, it can be done, I'm sure. It's, it's not right, set up so, to do as such, but we could easily set it up. All right, because I want to play a, a clip from um, Bride of the Monster. I'll send you a link to it in the PM on my forum sometime in the next 24 hours. It'll be well before the show anyway. Oh, uh, okay, can, so we can play it tomorrow evening. Yes. Okay, sure. That, yeah. that shouldn't be a problem at all. All right, and tomorrow we're going to look at um, well, the main topic of discussion. And I'm sorry, Eli, Eli couldn't have stayed on a bit longer because I would have liked to have asked him about this because he was he fought in Vietnam, and I uh, I wanted to ask him if you know he had any instances of divine protection. I, I know he's referred to one or two of them, but I would have liked to have heard a few of them. But um, tomorrow we're going to be talking about how Yahweh is a present help in time of trouble, and you know as as the world gets more and more troubled, we're we're going to need his help and rely on his help more and more. And um, also tomorrow we'll be looking at um, how Australia was founded and how, you know, um, even convicts, Israelite convicts, can turn, a, turn an arid continent into a, into a great land. And uh, we're also going to look at the, the Jewish influence on Australian multiculturalism. As I said to Eli, no matter where you put a Jew, he's going to get up to the same mischief he always gets up to. And, and we're also going to look, and this is going to be very controversial, Jeremy, tomorrow, the disturbing real-life parallels between Pastor Martin Lindstedt and Dr. Eric Vornoff, the character, the mad scientist um, Bella Lugosi played in Bride of the Monster. So wait till you hear that tomorrow, folks. It's even more, you know, fascinating than the, the Da Vinci Code. Not that we believe in the Da Vinci Code, but, you know, all of those parallels that people try to draw. Well, these are real parallels that you'll be able to see and hear for yourself tomorrow on the Obi and Visser Show. Indeed, I'm looking forward to that broadcast because I'm a big fan of those old Edward uh, D. the Edward Wood Jr. movies. Yes, well, yeah, well, well, well so am I. I mean, he wasn't bad for a transvestite director, was he? <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah, Glenn or Glenda as well. That's his little bastard side piece. But for the most part, you know, for be, getting the golden turkey and being seen as the world's worst director, I, I think there's some that are a lot worse than Ed Wood. That's just my opinion. Yeah, well, you spoke about Glenn or Glenda. They're re- Martin Lindstedt starring in a remake of that called Martin or Martina. Indeed. Yeah, I've heard about that. That's the life story of Amy Rose. Yes, uh, it was funny the other day. Um, I w- was it on the News Guy show in the chat room? Somebody, somebody was um, in the chat room as Amy Rose. A- <laughs> Amy Rose, eighty-eight. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> oh, I believe it, and that's just the beauty of the hypocrisy. They love calling you what they are. They don't mind trolling and drag. Nor does Rabbi Samuelson love posting under my name. That's quite telling, I think. Well, I thought it was hilarious the other day when you were saying that the judge handed him a sentence that was 665 days. He wouldn't even give Marty 666. So you know how um, 
in white nationalism, they have sort of numeric code, numeric code for things. Like eighty eight, I think, is Heil Hitler, and they have fourteen for the fourteen words, and sometimes yeah, you see fourteen eighty eight. Marty should be designated now as six six five. Six six five. So when you want to refer to Marty in shorthand, could just just call him six six five. Yeah, or, or or for lack of a better term, we could just make his code uh, fifty one fifty. Fifty-one fifty. I don't get it. Oh, fifty-one fifty. That's supposedly the universal code for uh, whack job mental health. So. Oh really? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Well, there you go. Well, here in, in America, fifty-one fifty or, or. Yeah, when or, the cops or, or, call in a fifty-one fifty, that means they got a basket case on their hands. Oh really? Well, that's interesting. Oh, calling fifty-one fifty or. You know, um, 665 or 665 <laughs> Probably somebody's telephone number. You ring it up, you get Marty. Yeah, or Olga, you know, because these guys, not only do they see a, G, a Jew under every rock and under every bush, <laughs> they see a viscer under every bush, and I think that's quite uh, entertaining. Yes, they've really been getting in, stu stuck into you, some of these um, nimbusters, haven't they? I know. Don't you love it? I kind of like the attention in a lot of ways. To give yourself over to one man to spend that much time. I even spoke to my mother about it a bit this week, and she was just shaking her head. You know, she's like, the idle hands is the devil's, you know, workshop for the most part. Because when these guys do nothing but trying to troll and find information on Facebook and look up what high school I went to 21 years ago, good luck. Yes, uh, well... <laughs> yeah, so, and what they can't find, they just make up. And even if they do find it, they'll they'll distort it in some way. Absolutely. It's like that old duck-duck-goose game. That's the beauty of it. And that's why I, th I think it's great that you brought up the aspect of uh, slander and, and gossip as well. But a wise man once said there truly is no such thing as bad publicity. As long as they're talking about you, whether it be good or bad, you know, that that's free publicity. That's that's what a Jewish mogul gets paid for in Hollywood. All right, Jeremy. Well, I'll have to hit the road, brother, and I'll see you um, at the same bat time, same bat channel tomorrow for our show. Excellent. I'm looking forward to tomorrow's show, and and I'll see you tomorrow, brother. Okay. Yahweh bless. Bye bye. Yahweh bless. And so with that, dear kinsfolk, we just had Pastor Eli James on. His website is anglosaxonisrael.com or .org, I believe, but easily searchable through Google where you can uh, find information about his webpage. And Obadiah just left. His website is thechristianidentityforum.net. That also is accessible on the World Wide Web. So, continuing on in many of what we've discussed before, Paul it was, and Paul who is recently under attack like many of the saints have been throughout time. Within Christian identity, ironically, many of those who attack Paul also like coming along and interjecting texts that were never universally recognized and or considered canon. But Paul says to Timothy many times, and there's two epistles to Timothy, in which Paul instructs on how a church a home, and our personal lives, and how we are supposed to instruct ourselves within that. So it, it is the Apostle Paul who tells us how we are to govern, and gives us many warnings, like this one found, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the quick and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom. And so us within Christian identity teach what is known as the kingdom message. 
There are kingdom identity ministries, stone kingdom ministries, and so forth, but all of them center around the aspect that we are not looking for our position within a kingdom of heaven which floats out in space, but rather a kingdom age ushered in by Jesus Christ at his second advent, bringing in his government and so forth. But we should know that Jesus Christ is he who judges the quick and the dead. He judges all, if you will, because at his appearing, every knee will bow. Every person will be down in the dust from which they were created of and have to face the realization of judgment. Judgment, dear kinsfolk, will not be pretty, and I assure you, in judgment, there will be many who are surprised. Many who were first will become last. And a prime example of that is when Jesus Christ tells those on his left hand, those foolish goats, depart from me, I never knew you. While it was the foolish goat company were they who said, well, we did many miracles in your name, we cast out demons and so forth, Jesus Christ still says, depart from me, I didn't know you, meaning... He never even heard their prayer. Why? Most likely they did not do the things that are listed in verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says this, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Stopping right there before continuing, that's the difference between Christian identity and white nationalism, dear kinsfolk. Because as white nationalism, or quote-unquote the atheistic sect that exists out there, was coming along saying they evolved from the same exact pond scum as the Negro and the Mexican and so forth, therefore they hate their own brother without cause, Christian identity straightforwardly teaches what the Bible does, and that is that Yahweh God created his Adam man separately, separate from all those other races, and breathed within him the breath of life, or that little bit of God, that spirit that we possess. That is the reason why the law was given to Israel, but only Israelites can exercise it. Why? They know the spirit of the law. Many races out there can come along and be scripture lawyers and say they know the law, that is Deuteronomy and so forth, Leviticus, but understanding the spirit of the law is entirely different. So Paul, Paul it is, who says we must preach the word. We must be ready in season and out of season to give an answer at all times, not stand around scratching our head wondering why it is we're cursed within this world. Continuing on, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Doctrine, of course, being the most important. Why? Because if it is not written within Scripture, it is simply not considered doctrine and or dogma. Now, there are many dis fights within Christian identity, as there are many fights within Christendom in general, over what should be considered dogma, what should be considered doctrine or not. But I think it's safe to assume that if it's not written, then it's simply not fact, not meant to be followed. So preach the word in season and out of season. Why? Verse 3 in 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now this is an extremely valid point, dear Kinsfolk, and it can be overlaid within today's society. Why? Because just as Scripture tells us in the Old Testament, it shall be today. Meaning that when man doesn't like what is written within Scripture, nine times out of ten what they'll do is they'll go out and they'll erect a preacher after their own liking. One will tickle their ears, one who will tell them what it is they want to hear. And so while the word of God may come along and say, don't engage in faggotry, a faggot is able to go out and find for himself a pro-homosexual pastor. While the word of God says, thou shalt not adulterate, the mixed-race couple is able to find themselves a universalist church. But we must 
go after what is considered, quote-unquote, sound doctrine. Why? Because the time is here, if you will. The time has always been. But this is considered an apostasy. Paul and Peter both adamantly taught about the apostasy, and the word apostasy means a falling away. A falling away from the simplicity that is in Christ. A falling away from what has been always written and or established. Many fall aside to political correct doc doctrines and dogmas. They come along and say, well, in this day and age, it's wrong to despise homosexuals. It's wrong to want to stay separate, as Yahweh God has commanded, and Eli James pointed out tonight. But that's not how we are supposed to be, dear kinsfolk. We're supposed to do what the Word of God says. Why? So we won't be misled in an apostasy by those who come along and say, well, Jesus Christ is a Jew. Say to them, prove it. Or they come along and say the Jews are God's chosen. It's merely up to you to say, prove it. Many of them cannot. They reach and grasp for straws and little straw man arguments to uh, defend their own positions. That is the God of their own creation. And that, I think, should be pointed out, dear kinsfolk, because everybody thinks Jesus Christ is just simply Jesus Christ, but many people out there have invented their own form of Jesus Christ, a, hi a liberal hippie, if you will, or a Jesus Christ who's tolerant of all people. But we must be following the Christ of the Bible. Why? Because he says his sheep will follow. They hear his voice. They know who he is. It is within Christian identity. You and I, dear kinsfolk, the white Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic kindred people who know who we are. We truly are the sons of God, and Jesus Christ is our mediator. But verse 4 in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy continues. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. Now, numerous places within the New Testament, we're commanded to not give heed to Jewish fables. This is an Old Testament commandment, and this is something that many of the latter apostles confirm for us. Why? Because Jesus Christ straightforwardly taught that through tradition, man makes know the word of God, and we see that today. Throughout the land on Sunday, there are millions of churches in America, Europe, and so forth who love espousing lies, things that are simply unsubstantiated within the Word of God. Why? Because they'd rather hear fables. They'd rather hear churchianity, feel-goodism, but anything but the truth. How can I say that? Because the truth makes one accountable. And as James, the brother of Jesus Christ, straightforwardly said... A man can look into a glass darkly. Every person sees themselves as what they ought not. Every person has the ability to self-justify. But when a man looks into the Word of God, it is as if he is looking into a mirror and made accountable. But what man does is he will turn away, walk away, and forget what manner of man it is he sees within the Word of God. So the Word of God makes man accountable, and they don't want to hear that. They would much rather be turned unto fables. Verse 5, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. And so as I straightforwardly pointed out, it was Paul, especially in his letters to Timothy, who tells Christians how we are to govern as a ministry, as a church, as a body. It is Paul who makes the statements that he does not want women to preach in church. It is Paul who makes such statements as Jesus Christ is to be the head of every church and or man, and that man is to be the head of the family and so forth. But many people out there despise Paul because Paul was a religionist, if you will. Paul was a Pharisee at one point within his life, and as such, he knew the Scripture better than probably you and I do. So we should not be turned away under fables and be able to endure afflictions. 
There's a reason why there is a quote-unquote Rabbi Samuelson who oppresses the true saints. There always has been. We should not marvel and say, well, geez, there's a tear amongst the wheat when Jesus Christ straightforwardly told us that the children of the devil would be sown in amongst the children of God. Now, while the Judeo-Christian sits within their pew or watches Monday night football and is unable to differentiate the spiritual war that you and I fight on a daily basis, be that as it may, we are to endure afflictions. Now, what is the most persecuted and or oppressed sect of Christianity historically, and especially in this latter era? Oh, indeed, dear kinsfolk, it is Christian identity because we strive for the faith delivered unto the saints. We strive for what is straightforwardly written within the Word of God. Not fables, not feel-goodism, and not political correctness. So, he says, make full proof of thy ministry. Be able. Now, you must understand, dear kinsfolk, that what Pastor Eli James, myself, and Obadiah do is nothing special. It is what each and every one of us are called to do. If not to stand before a group or to have a church building or to have a talk show program or a web page, per se, then at bare minimum to be able to preach to our family or community and explain to other people how Yahweh God has blessed us. Why? Because through this is how Christianity as a movement continues to grow. When it becomes stagnated, dear kinsfolk, what we have is what we see in the world today. In many regards, nobody is trying to study the Hebrew, the Greek, the Aramaic. The theologians of this day and age are those who come along and just attribute all good things to the quote-unquote Jews, never even understanding, as we discussed tonight, that the Jews is an entirely deep topic within itself and can go into many realms. Trying to understand who the quote-unquote Jew is will lead you into realms of Cain, Edom, and the Khazarians. But nonetheless, verse 5, watch thou in all things, Paul says. Verse 6, for now I am ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. Paul's telling you he's about to die. And when a man grows older within his own ministry, or at least his own personal walk, what he finds is that there's never enough time to do the things he wants to do. And you've heard me on record many times in the past, dear kinsfolk, that if I've said that if Pete Peters were alive today, the one thing that Pete Peters, who preached four to five times a week, would probably be regretful of would be the aspect that he didn't preach more than he did. So are we truly giving all we have to Yahweh God, to Jesus Christ? Because that is what Jesus Christ considers to be the greatest. Oh, indeed, we should remember that there was a time in the gospel narrative while Jesus Christ sat within the temple of Jerusalem, the main epicenter of where all the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and so forth came, and they would debate, and they would socialize. And there was an offering box, if you will, there at that time, and many people were coming along, and they were putting, for lack of a better term, 20 bucks, 50 bucks. They were putting all sorts of big donations within it. And along comes a widow, and a widow puts in two pennies, for lack of a better term. And Jesus Christ was most impressed with that. Why? Because he straightforwardly said she gave all she had. It's not the amount you give. It's how much of yourself you give to the law to the Word of God, to Jesus Christ, and to the teachings of Yahweh God. Every covenant made within the Old Testament and the New are eternal. They're considered eternal. That's what covenant means. And so while the Judeo-Christian says this is a book of prophecy given to the Jews, why should I concern myself with Old Testament or New Testament prophecy? You and I know the answer for that. That's because we're given tomorrow's newspaper 
today. It is through the books of the minor prophets, through the book of Obadiah, Habakkuk, and so forth, that we understand what the day of the Lord is. And that day of the Lord is a reestablishment of Yahweh's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus Christ told us to pray. And that is what Christian identity is looking forward to, hastening and harking towards. Dear kinsfolk, we must understand that we must fight the good fight, and Paul says the same exact thing. Verse 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, pay attention now, dear kinsfolk, but unto them that also have love of his appearing. So, that is what we discussed briefly in tonight's broadcast. That is the aspect that Isaiah and Jeremiah both were giving prophecies of the coming Messiah. For example, unto us a king is given, unto us a child is born, and so forth. That is what the Israelites of the Old Covenant would be looking forward to. And so it stands to reason that a majority of those who accepted Jesus Christ were Israelites. And this also answers that age-old question, is all Israel saved? Of course all Israel is saved, because the only way to truly be an Israelite on the spiritual end, not the physical, is the acceptance of Jesus Christ. So, while the Edomite out there is descended from the same father we are in many terms, at least Abraham and Isaac and so forth, we must understand that do, tares do look like wheat. They have their own covenant. They have their own deal with God, and God will be their judge. What an Israelite will do is look forward to and hasten the coming day of Yahweh God. Why? Because we have nothing to fear like the Judeo-Christian. Judgment day isn't something that we need to tremble and be shaking in our boots for because we have followed the law, because we have prayed in faith. Notice Paul straightforwardly says, I have kept the faith. What good is it to run a race if you don't have faith? This is the reason why Paul would say much later on, there's a sect of Christianity out there who say they are Christian, but they deny the power of God. The powers of Yahweh God are omnipotent. The powers of Yahweh God are life and death. He holds those keys. And so many times Jesus Christ would defeat death, his crucifixion being a perfect example of that, so you would understand his full deity. You would understand who he is and understand that not only does the Old Testament law say that in order for a bride to remarry, the bridegroom must be dead. But this is the reason why Yahweh God gave a bill of divorcement to his Israel people, his bride of old, and Jesus Christ must die in order to redeem them. Now you have a choice, dear kinsfolk. Now also are you more accountable for the blood of Jesus Christ if you sin willingly? Paul not so. He fought the good fight. He finished his course. He kept the faith. And because of that, verse 8 in chapter 4 confirms that he received for himself a great reward. Verse 9, do thy diligence to come shortly to me. And continuing on, he goes on into explaining that the Gentiles must hear. People come along and they say Gentile means non-Jew. That's a knee-jerk reaction that they have because, well, that's what they're programmed. And nine times out of ten, their teachers also are told within seminary that that's what Gentile means. But as Elias pointed out and numerous Christian identity theologians have stated, Gentile as a word means of the gen or the genios, meaning also of that Israelite race. Those in dysphoria, like the Romans, those who did not realize exactly who they were. 
You and I realize who we are, and it should be pointed out that while the Judeo-Christian has no problem with saying the Jews are God's chosen people, it is only considered to be quote-unquote racist or racism when a white man says as such. And so, if you really want to upset your Judeo-Christian pastor, a surefire way of doing that is simply going into your church and asking him, well, was Jesus Christ a Jew? How could he be a Jew when Scripture straightforwardly says he's a Nazarene? And notice the dirge barrage of answers you receive. Notice how suddenly this house of God, that's supposed to be loving and tolerant of all people, seemingly will only tolerate the wicked. And to them, racism is the worst sin of all, even though racism is not considered to be a sin at all throughout the law. In fact, it's commanded, and such commands as come out from among them and be ye separate. So what does all this mean? What this means is we should study diligently, time in and time out. Paul would say that there were to be false prophets. Paul would say that there will come a time where a man will turn his ears from hearing the truth because he would rather have his ears tickled. That is the time we live in today, and it is confirmed by also Peter and or Petros, who we discussed in tonight's study. Peter was able to identify Jesus Christ because he says, Thou art the Messiah, thou art the Son of God, when Jesus Christ asked him, Who do men say I am? And it was Jesus Christ who would say, Upon you, Peter, or at least upon this premise, the fact that Jesus Christ is Messiah, shall I establish my church. What does Peter say in his second epistle? His second epistle, chapter 2. He says this, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Stopping right there, he doesn't say might be. He says there shall be. Meaning, since even Peter's time, there have been false prophets. And false prophets who come along and interject damnable heresies. What are those? Well, let's continue reading. There shall be who, what do they do? They privily, privately, subtly, if you will, for lack of a better term, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So, understanding that judgment begins at the house of Yahweh God, that the church is cut off first, that is the reason why they bring upon themselves swift destruction, because they would rather come along and enter Deuce damnable heresies. What are these damnable heresies? Well, he says, they'll cleverly tell you lies about God. They'll turn against the master who bought them. They deny the power of God, dear kinsfolk, and that is the God that they follow. Many of them, if you were to ask them, what is the name of your God? They would say, well, God is just the Lord. God is God of the Bible. God doesn't have a name because they truly do not have a personal walk with them. These are most likely those who are found in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Second Peter 2.2.2. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So stopping right there. Understand it. It is because false prophets exist that the average person out there sees Christianity as the farce it is. When we understand that uh, these infeminized people like Ted Haggard love getting up in front of the pulpit, acting as if they're homosexuals, saying we must love and tolerate all others, this also has something to do with the reason why many within white nationalism see Christianity as a joke. Because mainstream Christianity is. Many, not some. But many, just as Jesus Christ says, shall follow their pernicious ways. The pernicious ways of the false prophet. Jesus Christ said through their traditions they make know the word of God. So when a true teacher comes along and states the obvious, like Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, the law of God is in effect and Jesus Christ taught as such, they're seen as evil. 
They are evil spoken of. These are the same exact people who call evil good and good evil. They're the ones who say the Jews are God's chosen, but not you and I, dear kinsfolk. But, verse 3, through covetousness shall they with fiend words make merchandise of you. Stopping right there. Understand it. This is why they do it. The love of money is the root of all evil. And that is the reason why the false prophet wants to make merchandise of you. They want to profit on you. Many people out there go along and they'll say, hey, I'm going to give 50 bucks, $500 to my favorite ministry. Then they fall on hard times, can't pay their bills, can't put food in their children's mouth. They go to their ministry and say, can I have a little help? And the church doesn't care. Why? Because the church is there to turn money. It's a business like many others. Well, the love of money truly is the root of all evil, and so it should be understood that Christian identity and Christian identity pastors don't hardly do anything for money. So if you're able to, please support them, because why? The false prophet has plenty of support. So, they make merchandise of you, continuing on in verse 3, and their damnation slumbereth not. Pay close attention to verse 4 of chapter 2. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So stopping right there, we must understand Jesus Christ straightforwardly taught that as it was in the times of Noah, shows, so also shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. Meaning, that just as it was in the times of Noah. What happened in the times of Noah, dear kinsfolk? What does Peter say straightforwardly here that Yahweh God sent the flood upon the world of the ungodly for? Well, we know in other places it says because they want to go after strange flesh, they wanted to intermarry, they wanted to intermix, and to a lesser degree, many of them intermarried with angels. That account is found in Genesis chapter 6. So it's confirmed here. God didn't spare them. He reserved them. And this is a straightforward quote from the book of Enoch. And there are three within this chapter alone where Peter says this. Enoch was taken and given a latter vision. Enoch's books parallel the second chapter of Second Peter. Why? Because they're straight in correlation saying the same exact thing. God didn't spare those angels. He reserved them for a latter judgment. So, this is where the confusion arises within Christian identity, because the book of Enoch straightforwardly says that the unions of those unholy marriages, if you will, that is between the fallen angels and the daughters of Adam, the unions, spirit, are free to roam the earth, meaning as his demons are free to wreak havoc. So the angels that fell are reserved. They are considered the watchers. They are considered the Grigori. And they are reserved for a latter judgment, meaning that angels will fall again. This is confirmed by Jesus Christ and the book of Revelation much later when he says a third of heaven fall with Satan. But that's another story in and of itself. Save not the old world, but save Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. So many of you might be saying, wait, I didn't know Noah was a, Peter, was a uh, preacher, but oh, indeed he was. Noah preached just as Moses, Aaron, and all the great patriarchs of old. And therefore, those who are considered to be preachers should be no different than you, because you should be also preaching everywhere you go. 
So, roundabout Noah didn't engage in political correctness, did he? While everyone in Noah's life and everyone in Noah's town were saying, what's wrong with you, Noah? Get with the times. Join the orgy. Noah was listening to the word of God, and he was being led of God. Wow. Many missed the point that it was God who sealed two of all flesh aboard the ark, and not necessarily Noah. It confirms that if we obey, Yahweh God will add increase. Yahweh God will bring about his will and Noah was one such person. Continuing on, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should after live ungodly. So understand the reason that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah through his angels, or the death angels, if you will, was so it would be an example for every generation to come along and say, this is what happens to a city when they're accepting and tolerant of homosexuals and race mixing. And while these things continue to happen and the modern world comes along and says, well, oh, how horrible it was that Sodom and the cities round about Sodom, like Gomorrah, were destroyed, you and I realize that the will of God is never evil. And if it is the will of God to destroy homosexuals, then so be it. But it is telling the difference between the spirit man and the physical man. The flesh man wants to come along and say, that's horrible that God destroyed an entire city where the spirit man understands. Just like Job, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Thy will and thy will alone be done. But they were an example, so that no city would go after that way. But yet, here we live in a modern America now where homosexuals are getting married. We live in a modern America now where homosexuals are accepted within a church. Understanding that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example for their, those thereafter like us, for those who choose to live ungodly, what we can deduct from this verse is that when a nation turns around and is tolerant and accepting of homosexuality, Yahweh God will send destruction. Continuing on, verse 7, and deliver just Lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Lot was Abraham's kin, and through Abraham's intercessory prayer on the plains of Mamre, he was able to deliver just Lot. That's what Peter's confirming here. But from the narrative, we must not neglect the aspect that God was going to destroy the entire city. And it was Abraham who said, if there's a hundred righteous, God said, I'll spare it for a hundred. And he'd drop it down and say, if there's 50 righteous, God says, I'll spare that city for 50. All the way down to 10. And the only ones that were delivered was just Lot, his wife, and his daughters. Now, what am I getting to? The aspect of God loved Abraham. God obeyed Abraham's prayer for him. But it was to his detriment. Because through Lot and his incestuous daughters came two of the most abominable tribes that have ever been a thorn in the side of the Israelite people, the Moabites and the Ammonites. So it was Yahweh God who knew better all along, and perhaps Lot should have been destroyed. But nonetheless, in Hebrews chapter 11, much later, Lot makes it into the Faith Hall of Fame, meaning he is a righteous seed, meaning he had faith. And that's what Paul was stressing such importance on earlier, and that's what Peter explains will deliver you through this great and terrible coming day of the Lord. But why was Lot vexed with the filthy conversation, meaning why was he troubled with the things that were going on round about Sodom and Gomorrah? Verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them and hearing and seeing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So, those things that are going in roundabout in the city have a spiritual effect on the inhabitants of that city. And that's confirmed right here. Wow. 
Lot was considered righteous, most likely a man of the word, man of the law, a man who knew Yahweh God, at least through Abram, Abram and Abraham. The fact that he lived within a city, and more specifically, a city that tolerated and was accepting of homosexuality, he vexed his soul with their unlawful deeds. This is the reason why Eli James most likely brought up that statement today within the scripture where it says, Come out from among them, touch not the unclean thing, because only Yahweh God can touch the unclean thing and not be corrupted from within. This is overlaid all the way in the beginning with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. While Yahweh God can plant it and not be corrupted from the very tree he placed there through his divine will in the very beginning, Man could not touch it without being polluted and or corrupted. And therefore, when Adam and Eve touched or, quote-unquote, partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin commenced, and through that sin, death. We must also understand that Satan, the fallen angel in the book of Revelation much later, is personified, capitalized, and deified as death, meaning that's his name. That's what death is. So understand that Jesus Christ had power and victory over the cross, over death, so you would understand who he is, that he's the life of all men, that within him dwells the true life, the light, and everything. That's the difference. We can come along and say, was Jesus a Jew? Was Jesus a Hebrew God? Was Jesus all of these things? Well, point in case to the Christian, Jesus Christ must be our everything. If Jesus Christ is your everything, then you will not fail. So... We can vex our own souls day to day with the unlawful deeds of what's going on. So, dear kinsfolk, be very stringent with what you allow within your mind, at least according to current events. Because tomorrow's anthrax scare will be the next day's killer bees and continuing on to the swine flu vaccine. Whatever it is, the way of the enemy is to come along and cast fear, but perfect love, whom God is, God is love, casteth away all fear. There is no fear within us. Why? Because we fear only Yahweh God. If we fear only Yahweh God, who has the keys of life and death, then there's truly nothing the wicked can do. And that's confirmed in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Second Peter. The Lord, or Yahweh, knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now, who is this reserved? We're about to find out momentarily, and once again, it ties all the way back to the Gregory. It falls to those who made a pact, an unholy covenant, under the leadership of Samziel, Azariah, and many other fallen demons, to fall and descend upon Mount Hermon, to take from the daughters of Adam, according to the Enochian account, and interbreed within them. The interbreeding that, that took place and commenced resulted in what's known as as tyrants. So be on guard of those who want to come along claiming the title of Christian identity and say, do you know what? There were 7,500 feet giants in the land when the word giant is a mistransliteration of the term tyrant. What was born of these fallen angel hybrids with the daughters of Adams were, for lack of a better term, mamsers, hybrids, perversions, not created of God. And we see no different today when we see the fraction of a white soul put within a mamzer's body and so forth. Dear kinsfolk, this is the reason why we are to be separate. And had Lot been separate from Sodom and Gomorrah, he would have delivered himself without intercessory prayer on the part of Abraham. He also would have most likely delivered the children of Israel from two of the most abominable tribes. Again, that from that point in the book of Genesis all the way up to the book of Revelation will be terrors unto good works and so forth. But who are those who are reserved 
the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. Verse 10, chiefly them that walk after the flesh of the lust of uncleanliness, that despise government. Stopping right there, that's not the government of the world. That doesn't mean if Obama comes along and says, you know what, I'm your king, I'm your pharaoh, you must bow to me, that the Christian is to give due benevolence. Rather, it means quite the opposite. And throughout all scripture, we're told that a Christian's duty to any government of man is if it is Christian and Christian alone. None other. No king but Jesus, or you can have your Caesar king. But every time man or Israelites turn along and they want a man king over them as opposed to God, we get what we see in Saul. We get what we see in Obama or Reagan or throughout the centuries. Man without God will fail. And while man can come along and miss the mark that the law was given to Moses to give, Moses represented the government while Aaron represented the church, the law, the dogma, and the word. And so the difference is, is that Yahweh God gives us the law so we can self-govern. And as Eli discussed today, if we self-govern, as Yahweh God says, if my people will turn from their wicked ways, seek my face, follow my law, then I'll hear, and I'll bless them. When we, as the Caucasians, are blessed, then every nation round about is blessed, and everything within its rightful order is good. And that is what the day of the Lord is, is a restoration process all the way back to paradise, meaning Eden, meaning how it was before Adam and Eve partook of the knowledge of good and evil, allowing death, sin, and so forth into the world. Those things will be obliterated in the great and terrible day of the Lord. Those rudiments shall be burned up. And the children of the devil, quote-unquote, those tares, straightforwardly are taken and burned first by the angels. But Jesus Christ straightforwardly says they shall be gathered, and they shall be gathered by angels, not men. So as men want to come along and incite you to do violence against your neighbor, whoever that person is, be on guard. Because Yahweh God says go nowhere with an angry man. The Lord knows how to deliver them. But those who are reserved as examples, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, are those who follow the flesh. Whether it be on any other vice, it's not just sitting around saying, you know what, I'm going to feed my flesh by uh, having bonbons and doing whatever it is. Gluttony also is a sin, according to Yahweh God. And these are examples. But they despise the government of Yahweh God. That is the reason why. Continuing on, presumptuous are they self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And so there it is. They'll come straightforwardly and say evil's good and good is evil. They'll tell you that Christianity should not be followed, but at the same time will espouse and promote liberalism or homosexuality or whatever their agenda is. As Paul says, we can either be a slave to the word of God or we can be a slave to sin. But one way or another, man will serve one or the other, including the agnostic and including the atheist. Oh, indeed, they think they're so illuminated they can come along and say, I don't believe in God. That doesn't matter if you believe in him or not. It doesn't make him any less real. It doesn't make judgment any less severe for the aspect that you say, I don't believe, and you want to bury your head in the sand. Be that as it may, many people want to do that. Why? Because they're the ones who are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Continuing on in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Pay close attention. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Stopping right there. Who is this them? The context of Second Peter is false prophets. Verse 1. He straightforwardly told you these are not necessarily the quote-unquote brute beasts if not in a spiritual sense, only. 
But these are Israelites. These are pastors who come along and they'll tell you anything you want to hear to make merchandise of you. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. They're not afraid to come along and say, you know what, God hates racists when God created the races. Or God loves the Jewish Jewish people, but despises the Gentiles. Whatever it is, they'll fix it, but they live a false dichotomy. They are those who aren't afraid to speak evil of the things they understand not, and that's confirmed in the very next verse. But notice before continuing, angels are greater in power and might than you and I, dear Ken Spoke, and we're talking archangelos here, not just messenger. But the angels, even those that are reserved, even the Gregory, do not argue with Satan. They don't bring railing accusation against the false prophet. They say, the Lord rebuke thee. This was seen in Jesus Christ when the devil came and tempted him. And what did he say? Get thee behind me. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. You don't argue a fool. You don't suffer with the wicked. You allow them to continue in their blind path. And straightforwardly, we're confirmed that they will fall within the ditch. That is the fate the fool suffers, because they have chosen their own path. But, verse 12 says this, But these, who? These, these false prophets, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things they understand not. Now, stopping right there, every single person out there is going to tell you, if you're a Christian identity, you're wrong. Even those who have never even opened their Bible to try to disprove you. They would rather go with the majority and just by default say, I claim victory. But dear kinsfolk, is it written, I would rather be hated for telling you the truth than love for telling you a lie? And that was the mindset of Paul. That was the mindset of Peter. So do not neglect this aspect within your own personal walk. They're not afraid to speak evil of the things they don't understand. So they don't understand it, they'll turn right around and slander it. They'll defame it. And that is a trait of the snake should be pointed out that the devil doesn't create anything. The devil only takes things that are good and created already of Yahweh God in the beginning to be perfect and good in his eyes, quote-unquote, and pervert them, bastardize them, vomit them up, and pass them off as his own. So, while those in Christian identity want to interject the fact that Yahweh God did not create the devil, I think they missed the mark because Yahweh God absolutely created the devil, his son of God, but did not create the quote-unquote Jew. The Jew is a hybridized race. The Jew is a product of a fallen angel. So, these as natural brute beasts were meant to be taken and dis destroyed, speak evil of the things they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, what's that say for those who follow them? And it straightforwardly said, many, in the second verse, shall follow their pernicious ways by by way and by through listening, the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. That is the reason why they'll come along and say Christian identity is a hate religion. They're domestic terrorists. They're plotting bomb assassinations and all of these things that have no semblance of what Christianity truly is. At least Christian identity. It's the white man's love religion. Jesus Christ wasn't driven out of a hatred for the Pharisee as much as he was driven out of a love for his own. He taught, no greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for his neighbor, for his kinsfolk, for his race, for his whatever. So we must also do the same, be a shining example, because if we do not pick up the cross and follow, meaning willing to die upon the cross for what we believe, then we're not worthy to be considered his disciple. So they'll perish within their own corruption. Verse 13 of Second Peter chapter 2 says this, 
And who? The false prophet. False prophets shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Get it through your head and understand it. The false prophet will sit there and look you directly in the eye and tell you a lie. Whether he believes it or doesn't is beside the point. The fact of the matter is they will sit there, have dinner with you while they're plotting to steal from you, while they're plotting to hit on your wife. And this is seen and overlaid so many times in other places where Jesus Christ says, don't judge what a man says out of his mouth, but what his fruits bring forth. For if a man's fruits and a man's ways please Yahweh God, then even his enemies shall be at peace with him. But... Not so for those that are reserved. These natural brute beasts that are meant to be taken and destroyed, they receive the reward of unrighteousness. Why? Because they count it as a pleasure to riot in the daytime. That could be seen as the Negro beast who loves rioting in the street, and that can also be seen in the straightforward account of these false prophets who would rather engage in riotous behavior. What is a riotous act but slander and or defamation? Those are those who would rather go to that and seek that out as opposed to what the Word of God teaches. Because it's easier to let someone else do their thinking. It's easier to go to someone else who's going to give them the dirt that they can use on their enemy than to actually do the research they have to do themselves to be able to disprove it. And that's what I was saying earlier. As the Judeo-Christian or even the atheist who comes along and says, I know that Christian identist is wrong while they've never opened their Bible, we should not be surprised. So also does the false prophet because they believe their opinion is fact. But what we believe is opinion nine times out of ten is not fact. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, in heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. And so you should understand, dear kinsfolk, that Pastor Visser is no stranger to this text. In fact, I've preached it about four to five times throughout my ministerial career. But this is the reason why I keep going back to this. They are a cursed Children, they are there in the very beginning in that family tree or that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve partook of. It was part of Yahweh's divine plan. So you'd understand God doesn't want robots. He could have made every single one of us turn around and not have any other ability or, or, or act upon ourselves but to love him. But that, dear kinsfolk, is what you have. Free will. Free will to be accountable for the blood of Jesus Christ or covered in it. And that is why I've stated so many times from the Covenant People's Ministry pulpit that a Christian is more accountable than the Old Testament Israelite. Because the Old Testament Israelite could go get a pigeon, a turtle dove, a lamb or a bullock, make a sin offering, sprinkle blood on the altar, and be forgiven of his sin. But if we're not under the grace of Jesus Christ, if we're not in commune of him, that person is responsible for the blood of Jesus Christ, meaning they crucify him all anew. That is the reason why we must stay on the straight and narrow. Jesus Christ taught the broad way is what the majority goes after. And the broad way leads to destruction. Narrow be the way, and few there be that find it. What? The way of life. The way of truth. And that, dear kinsfolk, is found within this word of God. So, understand that these are cursed children. They exercise through covetous practices, meaning they covet everything around. Yahweh God says, one not and rest within him. Verse 13, which have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Besor, who loved the wages of righteous, unrighteousness. 
Now, understanding who Balaam, the son of Basor, was, Balaam was a Mesopotamian soothsayer. Balaam was paid by the highest bidder, if you will, to prophesy whatever those roundabout wanted to hear. And so in the book of Kings and Chronicles, when an unrighteous king wanted to go ahead and spiritually cripple the Israelites, they'd hire Balaam. And Balaam would go and tell them, well, Yahweh God doesn't hear your prayers. Yahweh God wants nothing to do with you. And it wasn't so. The thing we must learn from the account of Balaam and his miraculous talking ass was the aspect that his ass knew more than Balaam. And as Balaam walked around saying, hey, I'm some great prophet, the children of Israel should have been able to see Satan sitting there. Should have seen Satan in the way. The devil appeared to the ass, if you will. But Balaam was one of those who come along and say, there's no devil. Why? Because he was a false prophet. He didn't even believe what he was preaching. And that's the context of Second Peter. Life's full of adultery. They mislead everyone else. Whether they mean it or don't, that's on them. But that's what people do. That's the trait of the snake, and we must not make that same mistake. The son of Besor, that is Balaam, loved the wages of unrighteousness. But was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Verse 16, the dumbass. That dumbass knew more than Balaam. And Balaam was on his way to curse the children of Israel, and it would have been as such, had an angel of the Lord not stood in the way. And this is a great pivotal teaching in the Old Testament narrative, because that angel of the Lord is translated from the term Hasatan, or Satan. Meaning, Yahweh God stood as an adversary, or a Satan, to Balaam himself. It was Yahweh God who gave the ass the ability to see, to rebuke. But it was the ass who had the ability to understand that. Was rebuked, Balaam, for his iniquity. Why? Because the dumbass, speaking with a man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. The prophet was mad. He was a false prophet. He was going to crucify, if you will, the children of Israel, at least lead them into a trap. And it was through an ass, a simple donkey, that Yahweh God was able to thwart the plans of man, thwart the plans of Satan. So the analogy is, cling to Yahweh God, cling to his word. Even if a preacher comes to you and says, hey, you know what, I had bagels and cream cheese and, and coffee and locks with Yahweh God this morning, and he told me something that's not in the Bible. He told me to tell you this new prophecy. It's not for you to listen to, dear kinsfolk. It's for you to be able to understand everything is written. Jesus Christ straightforwardly said, I have foretold you all things. Who is Jesus Christ? But the Word, that Word made flesh, the Logos. If he says he foretold you all things, you should understand that there is no latter prophecy. There is no prophet who's going to come along later and say, you know what? Uh, I have this new interpretation. I have this new Bible and so forth. We must stay focused. Why? Well, verse 17 continues, and Paul says this. Or Peter says this, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. The mist of darkness, the blackest of the black, the black in which no man could even read to see truth, the blackest of the black in which man's not able to walk three feet. That is reserved for who? Wells without water. Clouds that are carried about with a tempest. Those who go from this doctrine to that doctrine to church hop to this. The one-size-fits-all doctrine. That's exactly what that's saying. Those who follow the false prophet who tickles their ears. We cannot be like that. Why? Well, next verse confirms. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Stopping right there. That's how they do it. Feel goodism. They come along and say, hey, Aunt Betty, you've got a real nice dress. Well, what does Aunt Betty's dress have to do with the establishment of Yahweh's kingdom on earth? 
They come along and they say, did you hear what happened to Uncle Jack, for example? And they engage within the slander of the church. But what do any of these things have to do with the advancement of Christianity, with the study of, of his word or, or theology in general? They have nothing to do with it. So we must understand that. They speak swelling words of vanity. They allure through the lust of the flesh. They upbraid you. They say, yea, hath God said. They make you think you're illuminated if you turn from Yahweh God. They make you think you're retarded if you follow the Bible. And this is all done subtly. So they allure through the lust of the flesh, continuing on. Through much wantonness, through those, the, those that were clean escaped from them who lived in error. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. So stopping right there. They come along and they say, you want to be free? Well, come away from Christianity when Jesus Christ says, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The truth, quote unquote, can do one of two things. It can set you free, as Jesus Christ straightforwardly said, or it can hurt you. Either way, it's going to hurt you into being set free, or it's going to turn, hurt you into rebellion. Many of us make that mistake, but this is exactly how they do it. Swallowing words, and they promise liberty, while they themselves are the servants of corruption. This is the reason why I've straightforwardly taught so many times, that we will either be a slave to mammon, or we will be a slave to God. But as Jesus Christ taught, man can't serve God or mammon. You'll hate one, love the other, or despise one, and cling to the other, but we cannot serve God and mammon. So, the atheist comes along and says, I'm, I'm wise, aren't I? Because they're fools, just as David says. They come along and say, well, I know better than everybody, because the know-it-all truly is a jackass, like Balaam's ass, who doesn't really know exactly what they're talking about. But be that as it may, this is what they do. They promise liberty while they themselves are the servants of corruption. Pay close attention. For of whom a man is overcome, the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worth with them than the beginning. And so that is the reason why, if you come into Christian identity, if you come into Sola Scriptura Christianity in general, the CI, and truly no truth, there is no backsliding from that. It's impossible to turn from what you believe is true. That creates the very fiber of your thought, your being, your political aspect, and everything else. To the Christian, the Bible defines what is truth and what isn't. It defines our political, spiritual, physical beliefs, and even community beliefs. But if we turn from the Word of God, Yahweh God says He will turn His face from hearing us. Yahweh God says He will turn from blessing us. And we are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And that is the reason why Peter and Paul spent so much time under great consequence to give you the Word of God, all for the atheists to come along and say, who cares about the Word of God? Well, perhaps the thousands of people that have historically lost their life to bring it to you. But stopping there. Verse 20, for if after they've escaped it, it is better to have never known truth. It is better to never know the Word of God than to know it and turn from it. So while you can turn from it, you can only turn to evil. If you turn from the truth, the only other alternative is to lie. If you turn from the Torah, the only other option is the Talmud. And so this is the reason why we must stay within the Word. Why? Because the latter end with them is worse than the beginning. Meaning, they're worse off at the end than they were in the beginning before grace was imparted. So it is better to not pray for forgiveness of sins if you have any intentions of going out and sinning again. Because again, as I've stated, all you do when you do that 
is crucify Christ anew. So we do not want to be responsible of that. But I'm going to continue out the chapter two more verses, and we'll call it a night. Verse 21 of Second Peter chapter 2 says this. For it had been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than, after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. So as I said, many times Jesus Christ would say, do not cast your pearls before swine. The reason for that is because like a pig, they roll back to mud. Like a dog, they will go and lap up the vomit that they once believed many times. And so this is confirmed. It would be better for these apostates who fell for the false prophet, and the false prophet himself. Understand, dear kinsfolk, that in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire, quote-unquote, is reserved for the devil and his false prophets. That is a, a, also a sign of judgment, a sign of punishment, and reserved for that latter great and terrible coming day of the Lord. Final verse in Second Peter chapter 2 is verse 22. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says this, But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, The dog is turned again to his own vomit, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So as the word of God straightforwardly says that the Ethiopian cannot change his skin color and the leopard cannot change his spots, so also should the liberal, or at least those of us out there who once embraced liberalism, not scratch our head when a monkey becomes a monkey. You can put lipstick on a pig, you can teach a dog how to drive a car, but in the end it's still a pig and it's still a dog. And as I've pointed out in the past, it may seem unfair many times that uh, man spends so much time trying to turn animals into humans. On the same token, Jesus Christ many times would call quote-unquote humans animals, such as dogs and so forth, and so, and, or swine. And so with that being established, dear kinsfolk, once again I will say, Special thanks to Eli James for being on this evening and sharing his discourse on Jesus Christ not being a Jew. Let me be the first to apologize for not appearing on 11-11-11, because yours truly, Pastor Visser, has appeared on his 888 event, his 999 event, and I believe his 10-10-10 event. So, Eli James, if you're listening, I'd go ahead and mark me down for a 12-12-12 event if that happened. And Eli was one of those preachers I've had the fortunate ability to sit down with and actually sup with back in 2008 at the Feast of Tabernacles under the United Church of Yahweh, under Jonathan Williams and so forth. So that's refreshing to actually hear his voice again, and I know many of you are going to enjoy that. Special thanks also to Obadiah for tuning in. Obadiah and myself will be back tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, the same exact time with an entire discourse. He gave you an overview on what's going to be covered on that. Also featured, hopefully, in upcoming months will be an interview with Linda. That is Logan Hunter 88's ex-host, and she has very much to say. So uh, hopefully pray for her, and that will be coming uh, straightforwardly in the next few weeks, and much, much, much more. So with that being established, dear kinsfolk, this is Pastor Visser from the heart of the Dirty South, once again wishing you and yours great studies, war for Christ. Amen.